Thank you, Brother Wyatt. Thank you, everybody. Praise God. This is the day that the Lord hath made. That is enough reason to rejoice and be glad in this day. Praise God. I commend you for getting up early on a Saturday morning. And, uh, well, it's early for me. I mean, after all, it's only, what, uh, 7 a.m. right now. Coming up on 7 a.m. <clears throat> I commend you all for getting up early with me on a Saturday morning. Praise God. And uh, coming out to the house of God. What better place to have church than in a firehouse? Come on now. I wonder how many times they have to run over here thinking they got to put out the fire. I mean, that's just pretty cool right there. Praise God. Well, looking forward to today. What a great uh, crowd we had last night. Very engaged. And, uh, and I know some were driving a distance, they told us, and they said they'll probably come in late this morning. But uh, you're all here. God bless you. And we're going to dive right into this because uh, I'm excited to share with you this morning. Amen. So, you know, but just before you're seated, statistics say that one out of three people are born either extremely handsome or exceedingly beautiful. So take a close look to the person on your left. Just check them out. Now check out the person on your right, and if it doesn't look like it's either of them, well, lucky you, you good-looking thing, you. All right? Amen. And you may be seated. God bless you this morning. Hallelujah. Praise God. This morning, I'm going to deal with what I believe to be the number one ingredient in a leader. And uh, I mentioned last night that I had been asked uh, at one time, what's the number one secret to uh, growing a church? <clears throat> and I said, the attitude of the leader. So I'm going to talk about that this morning, which the number one ingredient for leadership. I'm not changing slides here. What am I doing wrong? On. Forward. There we go. Number one key ingredient for a leader is attitude. So I entitle this, Attitude Determines Altitude. Now, Proverbs 23 and 7 says, For as we think in our heart, so are we. And so our thoughts are vitally, vitally important. We become what we think. You know, we, 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 we hear that you become what you eat. So if you eat just chocolate sundaes, pretty soon you start looking like a chocolate sundae. You know, we, we've heard that. But, but you actually become what you, what you think. So I want us to have a little discussion here. And I want you to think of somebody that you greatly admire. Don't tell us who it is. You keep that to yourself. But you just think of someone that you greatly admire. And now I want you to think about why you greatly admire them. What is it about that person that causes you to greatly admire them, all right? And now this is interactive, so I want you to share. Who will go first? What is the key ingredient that causes you to greatly admire this person? Don't tell us who it is, but just tell us a key component of why you admire them. Yes, Joe? Their drive. Very good. All right? Yes. Humility. Excellent. Yes. Good listener. Very good. All right. Yes. Strength, very good. And you said initiative, very good. Character, excellent. Positive attitude, very good, very good. Yes. Integrity, outstanding. Overcomer, very good. Consistency, these are excellent. 
Very good. Anyone else? Yes. Passion. Very good. Very good. Anyone else? Yes. Love. Excellent. Compassion. Very good. Anyone else? Yes. Humble spirit. Very good. All right. Now, we, we could go on, but uh, now, now, let's, let's observe what, what just took place here. All right. Uh, without prompting, you shared the key quality of an individual that you greatly admire. Okay. Now, notice before we look at what made the list, and, and I kind of figured out what you might say, so I sort of put some sample things up here on the board. Isn't that amazing how that kind of just sort of works out, you know? Um, okay. Uh, so this kind of is, is universal when you're, when you're asking different groups. You get kind of the same responses. Notice what did not make the list. Okay. Nobody said wealth. Nobody said looks. Nobody said age. Nobody said opportunity. Nobody said luck. Nobody said power. Nobody said position, title. Why is that important? Nobody said automobile. Nobody said house. Nobody said job, career, company. The reason I'm pointing that out is if you ask most people what and why they are dissatisfied with themselves or their life, they would name the things that did not make our list. They would name their car, their house, their job, their looks, their bank account. Right? All right? So the problem is what we're focusing on. Now, notice one other thing about these items right here. This is really cool. And that is every single one of these items is completely up to you. Not a one of these is something you inherit or, or you're born with or, or you just got lucky and found somewhere or someone gave to you. Hello? And then most of the time when we're disappointed or dissatisfied, we're blaming somebody or something for why we're not successful or dissatisfied when in reality, without prompting, you said the number one reason you admired this person was because of things that they entirely chose for themselves. Every one of these things you choose for yourself, consistency, integrity, faithfulness, prayerfulness, compassionate, obedient, wisdom, dedicated, good listener, trustworthy. Every one of these you choose for yourself. So the point here is you decide for yourself. And by the way, all of these actually begin with an attitude. These are attitudes. It's really, really what they are. They are just choices you make, decisions you make. You say, this is how I'm going to be, and you go after it. Passion was mentioned. Everything that was mentioned falls into this general category. Isn't that awesome? So that's wonderful. William James, here's what he said. He said, the greatest discovery of my generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitude of mind. So here's what you could say. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. 
If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Quit waiting for your ship to come in. Quit waiting for your number to be called. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. I had an uncle. He passed away a few years ago. He was my mom's younger brother. And when he was born, he was born premature. And uh, this is back in the olden days. My mom was born in a log cabin that her father built with his own hands. And, and when her young brother was born, he was so small that her mother made his bed in a shoebox. True story. And he survived, and he grew, and he became man, but he was small. He was short, soaking wet. He might have weighed 90 pounds. He married a woman that was about four times his size. And he was the funniest guy on earth. He had quite a sense of humor. He was a preacher and a pastor. And, uh, and his wife, Mary, she just had such a great sense of humor. She just went along with everything. But uh, one of the things he said, he said, you know, I always prayed that my dream boat would come in, and she finally did, but I just never thought it'd be a cargo ship. <laughs> oh, well, that just came to mind. I don't know why, but anyway. All right, well, Lou Holt said, life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Let's talk about these attitudes that determine our altitude. Number one, my attitude at the beginning of a task will affect its outcome more than any other thing. Now, how many of you have heard of Paul Harvey? Okay. Isn't it amazing? There are only about a fourth of the hands that went up here. Times are moving by fast. Well, boys and girls, Paul Harvey was one of the greatest radio commentators ever. You talk about telling a story. He could take the most ordinary things and make them just phenomenally interesting. And he had the great ability to kind of go through the back door telling a story. In fact, he could tell you a familiar story, and you wouldn't even recognize it until the end. And you wouldn't understand it until the end. Of course, they would always have a commercial right before the great unveiling. And then it was called the rest of the story. All right. But Paul Harvey was known for his honesty and integrity. If he told a story, you could be sure it was accurate. It was true. It really happened. And he told this story. I heard him tell this story. And I only give that, you know, disclaimer at the beginning because this story is so unbelievable. If, if I didn't tell you Paul Harvey told it, you might question whether or not it really happened. But, but here's the story. It was one of the largest school districts in America. And uh, I, I forget now if it was New York or Los Angeles, Chicago. It was one of those three. But in the largest school district in America at the time, they, there were, uh, the superintendent of schools came to a particular teacher and said, we've got a problem. We have 20 students that have been kicked out of every school in the district. So there's no school now for them to attend. Before we completely give up on these students, we want to ask you if you'd be willing to try to meet with these students and see if you could work with them, and maybe we could salvage one or two of them. Otherwise, they're going to go through life completely uneducated. So the teacher said, all right, I'll, I'll try that. So she met with the students. Now, the first miracle happened the first day, and that is that they all showed up for class. That was miracle number one. But uh, the, the first thing she did is she did a roll call. The office had provided her 
a, a list of the names. And so she started calling the roll, and they all answered here, and wow, 100% are present. And then the next thing she did was quite unorthodox. She said, before I even start teaching today, I'm going to give you your homework assignment for tomorrow. And she proceeded to assign them one week's worth of homework. And she said, this is due tomorrow. Now, miracle number two happened on day number two, and that is that they all showed up for class again. Miracle number three, they all completed the homework. Every student, every one of the 20 completed a week's worth of homework in one night. And she said the second day after she commended them, she said, all right, like yesterday, I'm going to start the class by giving you tomorrow's homework assignment. And again, she gave them a week's worth of homework due tomorrow. The next day, they all showed up. They all had their homework done. I mean, it was an absolute miracle. This went on for the entire week. It went on for the entire month. It went on for the entire quarter. And when the quarter finished, not only had every student remained in the class, faithful to the class, but they completed all of the work assigned, all 20 of the students. I mean, these had been written off as incorrigibles, but all 20 of them made the president's honor roll. It was an amazing, amazing thing. So the superintendent of schools called an assembly for all the teachers in the whole district. They came together, and he introduced this teacher and explained the incredible phenomena that had just occurred. And, of course, the audience applauded. They were excited, ecstatic. They're all wanting to know what is the secret to her success. And so she stood in the podium. She was very embarrassed. She said, I am so sorry that I don't have something awesome to tell you and a way to help you in your classrooms. I know that's what you're all here for. But she said, I've got to be honest with you. This had nothing at all to do with me. It entirely was this particular group of students. She said, the first day I stood in front of the class, the district office had provided the roster of all the names. I called roll. And then I noticed they also had gone to the trouble. Beside each student's name, they put the IQ of that student. And I got to realizing every one of the 20 had extremely high IQs. When I saw that, I had the thought, maybe they just haven't been challenged. Maybe they're just bored. Maybe they're just cutting up and they're distracted and whatever. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to give them a whole bunch of homework to engage them. And so she told what she had done, giving each day a week's worth of homework and requiring it due the very next morning. And so when she said that, there was very polite applause. The teachers are a little deflated and disappointed. They're thinking, well, okay, yeah, anybody could do that. If you had all geniuses in your class, I could be a genius teacher too. And uh, so it's kind of a kind of a letdown. Well, the superintendent of school stepped back to the podium, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I also need to offer an apology. He said the roster list that we provided from the district office did not contain the IQs of the students. The numbers by their names were their locker numbers. True story. Paul Harvey said it. Now think about that. Think about that. Even though she was operating under false information, the results were the same as if it had been correct information. So what really was the difference? It wasn't that they're geniuses. We know that now. 
The difference was the attitude of this teacher at the beginning of the task. That was the difference. Contrast her attitude with the attitude of all the other teachers who had kicked these students out of their class and off their campus. When they received this student in their class, they looked at the records and they said, "Uh uh-oh, this kid's been kicked out of that class and out of that school and out of that school and out of that school. This is a troubled individual. And I don't want them bringing trouble in my classroom. The first time they look at me cross-eyed, they're out of here. The whole difference was the attitude at the beginning of the task. That's the most important thing. We could say the battle is won before the battle is begun. Number two, my attitude is the major difference between success or failure. Another true story, probably you've heard this story, but this is really true. And that is that a very successful shoe company sent their salesman to the jungles. He went to a village to sell shoes. He immediately wired home, and he said to his home company, bring me home. We won't do any sales here. Nobody wears shoes. Unwittingly, a rival shoe company sent their salesman to the very same village. The same day, he also messaged his home office. He said, send all the shoes you have. Nobody wears them here. The difference was simply their attitude. Where one saw problems, the other saw opportunities. You know the difference in a pessimist and an optimist, right? A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. And an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. It's just how you're looking at the situation. So my attitude is the major difference between success or failure. We could say it this way. Resources minus a right attitude equals defeat. You can have all the resources in the world. But if you don't have the right attitude, chances are you're not going to succeed. But a right attitude minus the resources can actually equal equal victory and success. <clears throat> Number three, my attitude can turn problems into blessings. <clears throat> my attitude can turn problems into blessings. You know, John F. Kennedy was was quite quite a quite a man, and uh, when he was campaigning, my father took me to one of his campaign speeches. I'll never forget that. I was just a little boy on my dad's shoulders. And so after that, I was very interested in following John F. Kennedy. And in, in Hollywood, where I live in Southern California, we have the famous Hollywood Wax Museum. My favorite display in that Hollywood Wax Museum is a display showing John Kennedy when he was in the war and his PT-109 boat is sinking in the oily, fiery waters. And while it's going down, he's treading water and he's holding the back collar of a fellow soldier who has who is unconscious and he's holding him so his head stays out of the water and he's saving that man's life and that scene right there is what many journalists felt propelled him to the white house and so one day after he was president they were interviewing him about this and they said so mr kennedy tell us how it is that you became a war hero and i love what he said 
He said, I had no choice. They sank my boat. I love that statement. I had no choice. They sank my boat. Now, how many other people would have said, you know, I couldn't engage in the war because they sank my boat. But, but he took what would have been just, you know, the end of someone else's life and career, and he took that and said, well, that was the catalyst for mine. I had no choice. They sank my boat. You know, my attitude can turn problems into blessings. Now, contrast that with the way most people think too many people turn blessings into problems. Okay? Kind of like the old farmer and his wife. This is back in the day when airplanes were still kind of a newfangled invention. And the old farmer and his wife, in the summertime, one of these barnstormers, these were pilots that uh, in the summer they'd fly their planes to the country, they'd land and put up a little sandwich board and give people rides for money. And so this guy landed in his farm community, and he's giving people rides. The old farmer's wife, they'd never seen an airplane. They're standing there with their arms folded, and they're watching this, and they watch people as they go up and come down, and people are laughing, having a good time, and they think, wow, that's really something. And a little sandwich board there said, rides $10 each. And so they noticed there were two kind of cockpits in this airplane, and the pilot would sit in the one in the back, and he would put the passenger in the one in the front. And they noticed sometimes he would take even two passengers at one time in the front. So they walked up to the pilot, and they said, hey, my wife and I, the farmer, said, we'd like to go in that their airplane. He said, okay, that'd be $20. He said, but it says $10 a ride. He said, yeah, but that's per person. There's two of you. He said, but yeah, we, we've been watching this, and, and you spend the same amount of time whether you got one person up there or whether you got two. So that ain't right. So we want to both go for, for $10. Well, they argued back and forth. Farmer wouldn't budge. Pilot wouldn't budge. Finally, the pilot said, tell you what, I'll make you a deal. He said, you give me the $20 for the both of you to ride, and we'll go up. If during the ride you don't make one sound when we land, I'll give you the whole $20 back. Your ride will have been free. Old farmer thinks about that, looks at his wife, and he says, we'll do it. He hands them the $20, and they get up front, and the pilot takes off. Well, you could just imagine what the pilot did, right? I mean, he pulled out all the stops. He's going to put on an air show right now. I mean, he did power on stalls and power off stalls, and he did eight-point rolls, and he did hammerheads. He did everything he could do to, to, to just upset this farmer and wife, but the farmer didn't make one single sound. Finally, the pilot got a little woozy himself, and he said, okay, they earned it. I'm going to land this thing. And he landed that airplane, climbed out, handed that farmer the 20 bucks. He said, i got to give it to you. You didn't say a single word. And the farmer said, nope. But I almost did when my wife fell out up there. (laughs) See, some people know how to turn blessings into problems. Hello? That's not the kind of attitude we're talking about. My attitude needs to turn problems into blessings. What we could say is, my problem is not really my problem. I remember the first time I rode in a Lexus car. I wasn't even interested in riding in a Lexus car. I confess. I said, who in their right mind would pay $30,000 for a car from Japan? you got to understand, I grew up in the paradigm of the five-and-dime stores, right? 
when the cheap toys that we could afford when we didn't have money cost a nickel, and they all said, made in Japan. Right? So I said, who in the world is going to pay $30,000 for a car from Japan? My brother-in-law lived in Sacramento, and I was up there on a trip. He says, hey, have you ridden one of those Lexus cars? I said, no, and I'm not interested. It's made in Japan. He said, you need to try it. We went on a test drive. Unbelievable. The salesman started telling me about what this car would do. He told me it had stuff that no other car had. It, it had incredible braking systems and safety systems and all that. And, and uh, he said, for example, he said, you know, you could be driving at freeway speeds and have two wheels on the pavement and two wheels on an oil slick. And you could slam on the brakes in emergency, which would normally just put your car into a spin. And he said, that car will stop stress. I said, no kidding. He said, no kidding. We went on a test drive. We got on the own ramp of the freeway. I gunned that thing. I got it to 60-plus miles an hour. I moved off to where two wheels were on the shoulder, the dirt, and two on the pavement. And I slammed on the brakes. That salesman dug his fingers right into the dash. What are you doing? I said, you told me to do this. I had to see it for myself. It really did. When I saw that, I said, i got to have one of these cars. Well, I couldn't afford one, but I had a car dealer in my church. I said, hey, Randy, i really like to have one of those little Lexus cars. He called me one day. It was about three years after they were out. He said, hey, Pastor, i got a three-year-old Cherry Lexus LS400. He said, I can let you have it for a steal. I said, let's go steal him something. <laughs> and we did. I drove that car home. It wasn't brand new, but it was brand new to me. And I'll tell you what, it was like the nicest, most expensive class car I had ever, ever owned. I was so proud of that. It was interesting. The very day that I drove it home from Randy's dealership, I had a trip out of town. And so I parked that car in the garage, got on that airplane, flew that trip. I got to tell you, I had a hard time keeping my mind off that car. I just couldn't wait to take that car on a trip. I mean, I'd only driven it five miles. You know, I got I got to try that car. And, and I was gone on the trip for maybe, I forget, two, three days, something like that. When I got home, I just couldn't wait to, to get in that car and just, just try it out. I got home. I got in that car. And I started backing out of the garage. And I got almost all the way out of the garage. And I noticed that the side of my garage frame was like all crushed in. The wood was all bashed in. I thought, what in the world? I stopped and I got out and I looked at it. I said, somebody has damaged my garage. I can't believe this. And as I turned to get back in the car, I noticed that my fender on my brand new Lexus LS400 that I hadn't had a chance to really try out yet was all crumpled too. I said, whoa, my garage frame is smashed. My fender is crumpled. It looks to me like that fender kissed that garage frame. I just pulled that car back in the garage, waited for people to get home. The first kid got home, and I said, hey, you been driving my new Lexus car? No, Dad. The second kid got home. I said, hey. You've been driving my new Lexus car? No, Dad. They acted really suspiciously smug. And I really was questioning whether they were telling me the truth or not. And I said, you know anything about my Lexus car having a dent in the fender? All right, something's going on here. My wife got home. 
I said, you've been driving my new Lexus car? No, dear. Wait a minute. That's all the drivers in my family. And I went back questioning him again. Nobody had been driving my new Lexus car. I said, okay, let me go through this again. Did anybody get in my Lexus car while I was gone? Well, we might have sat in it. Okay. Did anybody start the engine? Yeah, we started the engine. Who started the engine? Well, mom started the engine. Okay. But you didn't drive it? No, I didn't drive it. All right. Did you put the car in gear? Well, yeah, I put it in gear. And did you go anywhere? No, that was the problem. It wouldn't go. I said, what do you mean? Well, I was going to drive it. And I just backed it slowly out of the drive, and then it just it wouldn't go anywhere. And I kept pushing the gas and pushing the gas and pushing the gas. It wouldn't budge. So I just pulled it back forward. I said, okay, I think the picture's coming clearer here. I said, demonstrate to me exactly your posture when you backed out of the garage. Well, I just turned around like this, and I'm just looking and easing back, and then it just stopped. I thought the emergency brake is stuck on. I checked everything. Could, well, I finally figured it out. She eased out and eased up against the side of the garage, didn't even know it. And when it stopped, she just kept pushing the accelerator. And each time she did, crumple more, crumple more, crumple more. She didn't think she had done it. In fact, they didn't even know the garage was damaged until I took him out and showed it to him. I felt pretty horrible. I felt pretty horrible for several days, for a week, for a long time. I had to practice a lot of that forgiveness stuff. My attitude hit the pits, i got to admit to you. It hit the pits. That's the best car I ever owned, and I don't even get to drive it on a trip, and it's already ruined. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, now, wait a minute. When did this happen? She said, the day you left. That was three days ago. And for two of those three days, I was very happy. And the problem had already occurred. But I was happy. So the problem wasn't really the problem. The problem was my attitude regarding the problem. Your problem is not the problem. Your problem is your attitude about the problem. Number four, my attitude can give me uncommon perspective. Now, I'm from San Diego, and right off Highway 94... There's a big house on a hill, and it has a big A. It's been there a long time. And that is Archie Moore's house. Archie Moore was a professional boxer. Became the light heavyweight champion of the world. But Archie Moore, early in his career, was knocked down three times in one round. And then he was knocked down three times in one round again. And legend has it that his trainer got him in the corner after that second round of being knocked down three times and said, Archie, we got to change up our tactics just a little bit here. He said, listen, he said, when you get knocked down, you keep jumping right back on your feet. He said, here's what I want to do the next time you get knocked down. He said, you lay there for a little while. He said, the referee's got to count all the way to 10 before you're out. So you lay there for like the count of eight before you get back up again. He said, these referees, they're not that very well educated. They talk real slow. They go, one, two, three, 
four. So you just take your time there until he gets to about eight. And then you get back on your feet, okay? And Archie said, whatever for? He said, well, listen. He said, if you'll do that, the guy will run out of time. He won't have time to knock you down three times. And Archie said, Coach, I can't do that. And he said, why not? Now, here's what you got to catch. My attitude gives me uncommon perspective. He said, if I lay there till the count of ten, till the count of eight, I'm going to be giving that other guy a rest. Well, that's a different way of looking at it. He went back into that round, knocked the guy out, became a, heavy, a light heavyweight champion of the world. My attitude can give me uncommon perspective. It was Bobby Kennedy that said, some people look at things as they are and say, why? I look at things as they can be and say, why not? Why not? My attitude can give me uncommon perspective. Number five, my attitude, not my achievements, will bring me happiness. Reality check, the thoughts in your mind are more important than the things in your life. I didn't come up with that. Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ did. He said, life does not consist in the abundance of things one possesses. That's just another way of saying the thoughts in your mind are more important than the things in your life. Luke Oh, I didn't realize I had it on the screen. There it is. It's Luke twelve fifteen, And when he said that, he said, beware of covetousness. Saying, don't get hung up with things. Things that you have or that you don't have or that you wish you had. Beware of covetousness. A man's life consisteth not the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now, this is so vitally important. Don't confuse standard of living with quality of life. Way too many people make that mistake. Even in Pentecost, way too many people make that mistake. Standard of living and quality of life is not the same thing. I've seen people with extremely high standards of living. I've known people with extremely high standards of living, but a low quality of life. We have a Christian school. We have had professional ball players with their kids in our school from the San Diego Padres, the San Diego Chargers, sat down with, I'm not going to tell you his name, but defensive end for the San Diego Chargers. When he signed his first, second contract, his bonus contract, he said, Pastor, I need some help. Got a $7 million bonus. He said, I need some help. He said, we need to know how to handle our money. And Life does not consist in the abundance of things one possesses. I've seen people extremely wealthy, but they don't have that quality of life. In fact, I've seen people sacrifice quality of life on the altar of standard of living. Contrary to that, I've seen people with a relatively low standard of living, but a high quality of life. Now, here's what I've discovered in my life experience, and that is this. That just because you raise your standard of living, your quality of life does not necessarily rise with your rising standard of living. But when you focus on quality of life and you raise your quality of life, your standard of living is also going to be lifted as you raise your quality of life. It's just the difference in what you're focusing on. 
So focus on quality of life. Now, Jesus did not promise us high standards of living. He does not. The Bible does not promise that. But he does promise high quality of life. He said, whatever state you find yourself in, therewith be content. You're in the state of New Jersey. Be content to be in the state of New Jersey. I live in California. People in New Jersey, oh, if I could just live in California. You won't believe this. But I got people in California that say, man, if I could just live in New Jersey. Yeah. And everywhere you go, people say, well, if I could just live here. Well, I, I could. You're focused on the wrong thing. Don't focus on that standard of living. Focus on quality of life. Amen. You make your home wherever you make your home. And that's the place that you should be happy and satisfied with. So don't confuse these two. Christina Onassis, at the time she made this statement, she was considered, she's on the front of, of, of Time Magazine, and she was called the richest young eligible woman in the world. And here's what she said. She said, happiness is not based on money, and the greatest proof of that is my family, Christina Onassis. And shortly after that, she took her own life. I'm telling you, my friends, standard of living is not where it's at. Quality of life is where it's at. I've been in many countries of the world, many third world countries of the world, and it just amazes me how that, the peop- especially the people of God, that they can find a quality of life regardless of their circumstance. And they may be in the lowest, and usually they are, in the very lowest standard of living, living you can imagine, but they found such a rich quality of life. Amen. My oldest daughter, Amber, she was about, I think, 8 or 10 at the time. And she became, in my opinion, she became so ungrateful for the things we have. And so I told my wife, I need to take Amber on a missions trip with me. We took her on a 21-day Philippines missions trip. And during the early part of that, we actually stayed in the missionary's home who lived just in a normal, poor neighborhood. My daughter... Amber, and now my youngest, Alicia, kind of has followed in those footsteps. They are enamored with shoes. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. When we go on a trip, there is one suitcase that is only for shoes. I'm like, how can you wear all those shoes on this trip? Now, I know I go to the other extreme. I'm wearing one pair of shoes, and this is the only pair of shoes I brought on this trip. My wife wants to pack a pair for each outfit. I said, no, one is good, one and done, you know. But, but my, my daughters are the other extreme, an entire suitcase just for shoes. I said, look, we're only gone this many days. How can you wear that many? Well, Dad, i got to wear shoes with that outfit in the morning, and then the outfit I'm wearing that. You're changing clothes in the middle of the day? Now, if we're going from church to the amusement park, that's one thing. But just normal course of living, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's how she was. In fact, we nickname our kids, and one of them is named Madison Avenue. So you, you get the picture, okay? So we go to Philippines. Let me tell you something. She came home with only the clothes that she was wearing. By the time that trip was over, she had given away every pair of shoes and every other dress and everything she had except the clothes she was wearing, and it cured her. You know, I preach to our church people. I say, you know what? Everyone, when you get a teenager, send them on a missions trip. And don't send them to Hawaii. You send them to a third world country. <laughs> Amen. Let them get a taste of what the real world is really like. The, the, the poorest person in America, the poorest person in America is not poor by most of our world standards. I'm just telling you that. Okay? Amen. But they found a quality of life regardless of their standard 
of living. Here's the problem. Way too many people have destination disease. If only I could live there, I'd be happy. If only I lived in that neighborhood, I'd be happy. If only I lived in that house, I'd be happy. Destination disease. Terrible, terrible disease. I think the clinical term is destinationitis. Something like that. I'm making that up anyway. Number two, too many people have someone else disease. If only I could be her, I'd be happy. Or, or they'll say it like this. If only I could marry him, I'd be happy. I've counseled some of those people. And then they got married. And then I have to counsel them again. I say, what's the problem? If only I wasn't married to him, I'd be happy. And number three, way too many people have the backslider blues. They're always singing the same old song. If only I hadn't done that, I'd be a success. I'd be happy. Forgetting those things that are behind. Reaching forth to those things that are yet before. The surprise is always ahead of us, not behind us. Amen. Number six, my attitude will change when I want it to. Remember that first list? You make that choice. Nobody determines your attitude. You determine your own attitude. We cannot tailor-make the situations in our life, but we can tailor-make the attitudes to fit them before they arrive. And that's what John Kennedy did, and that's why he could say, I had no choice to be a hero because they sank my boat. Now, how do we tailor-make our attitudes? Number one, understand the importance of attitude. After this lesson, you ought to understand the importance of attitude. Number two, quit blaming others and quit blaming things for your attitude. You choose and determine your own attitude regardless of the circumstance. Number three, develop a plan and commit to improve it. I'm about to give you a plan. So I'm going to give you a plan, and if you'll commit to it, you can improve your attitude. All right? Number seven, my attitude needs continuous adjustment, continuous adjustment. I was flying with Brother Benny DeMerchant down in Brazil. He's our longest-term missionary in the history of the UPCI. This is way back in the day when kind of video equipment first became affordable to consumers. And so I had video equipment, and we're trying to help him make a missions film. So we're flying all over the Amazon jungle. And at one point, he says, Brother Hodges, he says, look, far as you can see to the north, far as you can see to the south, Far as you can see to the east, far as you can see to the west, a thousand miles in any direction, there's nothing but jungle. And that was right. There was nothing but jungle. And we're flying. It looked to me like we're flying right above treetop level, but he said we're about 150 feet above the trees. That still to me was kind of pretty close. But uh, we're, we're flying over this jungle, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, we went into a cloud, and everything just turned white, and we didn't come out. And we're flying along, can't see a thing. And I'm thinking, there's trees right there below us. I said, hey, Brother DeMerchant, I said, I uh, think we might, should just like gain a little bit of altitude here. That'd be a good idea. He said, oh, we're fine. I said, okay. I said, hey, Brother DeMerchant, I'd feel a little more comfortable if we got a little higher. He said, we're okay. I said, well, how can you say that? He said, there aren't any trees anywhere in the Amazon jungle above, and I forget what the number is, but he knew what the highest tree was. He said, we're above that, so we're fine. I said, okay. I said, Brother DeMerchant, now I'm filming right here, okay? I said, Brother DeMerchant, I said, um, you say we're fine, but, like, we can't see the ground. Actually, we can't see anything. So how do we know even where the ground is? I mean, I know it's supposed to be down there below our feet, but how do we know that it's not over there? It's, I mean, we can't see. He said, well, 
he said, we got these instruments right here. So I'm filming this. He's all right. Explain these instruments to me. So he's okay. This the instrument does this and this does that. And he says, right now, he says, the most important instrument to me is this one right here. It's called, it's called the, it's got an artificial horizon. He said, it's called the, you ready for this? It's called the attitude indicator. An airplane has an attitude indicator? Wow, that's a good lesson in life, isn't it? And he says that's the most important instrument he's focused on right now. I said, cool. Demonstrate to me how this attitude indicator works. And that's a picture of the attitude indicator right there at the bottom left. He said, well, watch this. He says, I'm going to turn the airplane to the right, and you'll watch that attitude indicator change. It goes, and I'm watching, and nothing happened. I mean, it just stayed right like that right there. I said, hey, brother, the merchant, that thing didn't move. He said, you're right, it didn't, did it? He said, tell you what, let's do this. And he turned it to the left. And it didn't move. I said, hey, brother Mertz, that thing didn't move again. He said, no, you're right. Been having trouble with that lately. (laughs) That's not what I want to hear when we can't see a thing. And you knew you were having trouble with that, and you're still calm. He said, you know, sometimes these things get sticky. He reached up there and rap, 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 rap with his knuckle. He said, that ought to do it. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. He said, hmm, that's troublesome. Thinking, yeah, that's troublesome. He reaches in his back pocket. As God is my witness, I'm not making this story up or embellishing it at all. He reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out a screwdriver. He holds it on the pointy end, and with the blunt end, he just raps on the glass on that end. So he goes, rap, rap, rap. That ought to do it. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. I said, what do we do? He said, you know, I think it finally bit the dust. I said, Brother Merchant, what do we do seriously? He said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. He said, that's my primary instrument, but he said, i got other backup instruments. If my attitude indicator fails, I've got this one right here. It's the turn and bank. i got this one right here. It's the VS. i got these. And so he starts explaining these other instruments. But from that lesson, I learned something. I learned it's really important that you know what your attitude indicators are, and then it's really important you pay attention to them, and then it's really important that they're working in your life. Okay. I don't have to tell you the rest of the story. You know we survived here, right? Here are some of your attitude indicators, all right? These are indicators that you need to make an adjustment in your attitude. Number one, when you don't have enough time for God. Well, I just wish I could pray more. Well, why aren't you praying more? Well, I don't have enough time. Ooh, that's a pretty important attitude indicator that you probably need an adjustment here. Number two, when my family tells me. If you've got a family, count your blessings. And when your family tells you you need to adjust your attitude, listen to them. Don't blame them. Don't turn them off. You need to pay attention. God put them in your life for a reason. Number three, when your relationship with your staff becomes strained. That's an indicator not that they have a problem, but that you need to make an adjustment. Number four, when your view of others is lowered. You used to think more highly of people, and now you don't think as highly of them at all. 
probably not their problem. It's probably an adjustment you need to make in your attitude. And number five, this is the ultimate, when you get a cynical view of life. What does that mean? Years ago, someone gave me a little plaque. I had it on my desk for a long time. It went something like this. It said, lately, it seems like the whole world's gone crazy, but you and me, and now I've got my doubts about you. <laughs> kind of like the story, you know, the guy that got a little Limburger cheese stuck on his or stuck in his mustache and went out. It said the house stinks, so he went outside. Well, the whole world stinks, you know. <laughs> and that, that's called a cynical view of life. Like, what's wrong with everybody? Well, that's pretty ultimate indicator there. Not everybody can be wrong, so you better check your own attitude. These are attitude indicators. Now, more important than that is, okay, what do I do to make the adjustment? These are the indicators that I need to do something. Now, how do I do that something? Well, these are what I call attitude adjustment remedies. Here's how you can adjust your attitude. Number one, say the right words. Let me tell you, words are powerful. I mean, think about it. Words are very, very powerful. God could have chosen any mechanism, but he chose words. He chose words. He chose words to create the world. He chose words to save the world. He chooses words. When he came to reveal himself, he revealed himself as the word. Jesus is called the word made flesh. Words are really important. We need to say the right words. People that say, well, if you're thinking it, you might as well just say it. No, 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 no. not true. That's false. That's bad, bad information right there, okay? You don't say everything you think, all right? You don't always control your thoughts. Now, we're always working to do that, but you're not always in control of your thoughts. There are thoughts that come to your mind that you don't want to come to your mind, right? You're forced to control them after the fact. You're not the one that initiated the thought. So you dare not just say every thought that comes to your mind because you don't know where that thought came from. But once you say it, you own it. You know, person, I I don't know where that came from. Well, I know where it came from. It came from your mouth. And furthermore, the Bible says it's from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You say, well, that wasn't me. Well, yes, it was. Own it. Maybe that's a part of you you didn't know was there, but it just got revealed. And that is possible because nobody knows. Even you don't know your own heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. No man can know it. Okay, only God knows the heart. So if it gets revealed, rather than curse it, thank God for it and deal with it. All right, but we need to say the right words. Say the right words. Words either build up or words tear down. Say the right words. Number two, read the right books. <clears throat> read the right books. When I, when I was young, I was still a teenager, and I was preaching. And I was preaching in Louisiana. And a pastor, um, you know, when you're young, you're dumb. And I didn't figure all these things out till later, but... Uh, he had four daughters, and that's why he kind of extended the revival. I can realize that now. But anyway, uh, he had me come as a young single evangelist preaching at his church. But this guy introduced, I mean, he's like the original America's cowboy, okay? He introduced me to an author by the name of Louis Lamore. Anybody heard of an author named Louis Lamore? All right. This guy had every book Louis Lamore ever wrote. Now, Louis Lamore is one of the most famed and successful authors of, of you know, cowboy-type stories. The unique thing about Louis Lamore, I discovered later, 
is that though his stories are fictional, they're all based on true geography and true events and things like that. So, you know, if he said they passed this river and this and that, there's really a river like that. And, and that's pretty cool once you realize that. But anyway, I, I think that that uh, a pastor said, I'm going to keep this young man in revival until he finishes my whole Louis L'Amour collection. So I, he got me into reading these Louis L'Amour cowboy stories. And, and before you know it, just by reading those books, I found my behavior being affected. For example, we'd go to eat at a restaurant, and I'd look for the table that had the view of the doors and the exit and the restaurant. And you know, I don't want to turn my back to anybody, you know. Enemy might come out of nowhere, you know. And, uh, and I found myself standing taller and with my shoulders thrown back and my head held up. I found myself looking people right in the eye, and I wouldn't look off until they did. I mean, and that all came from that, reading that Louis Lamar. I got to thinking I'm some cowboy or something, you know. Right after I got married, I'm a prolific reader, have always been since I was a kid, and I was reading a book. It's a true story. It was the story of the very first NFL uh, breaking of the color barrier when it comes to roommates. It was a story of a guy named Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. And they became best of friends. And one of them was black and one of them was white. And then one of them contracted cancer and battled that cancer. It was a story how they support each other during that, and he eventually died. And I'm reading this book. I'm newly wed. Okay, I'm newly married. I'm reading this book, and I couldn't help it. I mean, it grabbed a hold of me. I started crying. So I kind of turned so my new wife, you know, wouldn't see I'm crying. And, and, and then she caught, she said, are you crying? I said, uh, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. What's wrong? What's wrong? You are crying. What, what are you? I said, well, it's this book. This book? What about? I said, this guy's got cancer. Well, so what? It's a book. I said, yeah, but it's a true story. Well, so what? I said, why are you crying? I said, what if I have cancer? She said, you don't have cancer, crazy thing, you, you know. <laughs> it's the power of what you read. I mean, we need to read the right things. They do affect us. Now, it goes without saying that the best thing you can read are the 66 best books in the world, which makes up the collection of the Bible. But it also goes without saying those are not the only books you're ever going to read. So you need to be careful what you choose to read. Read the right books. It will affect your attitude. It really, really will. It will adjust your attitude. Number three, listen to the right things, whether it's radio, whether it's people, whether it's CDs, whether it's podcasts, music, whatever it is, listen to the right things. That will adjust your attitude. Number four, see the right people. See the right people. Listen, you're going to find whatever it is you're looking for. If you're looking for problems, you're going to find them. Let me tell you, if you're looking for devils, you're going to find them. I think I said last night, let's look for some angels because you'll find them. You're going to find what you're looking for. It's kind of like the old story of, of the barnyard animals when the kitty cat decided she was going to go visit the queen's palace. And they were all excited about the journey the kitty cat's about to take. And so the horse says, hey, when you get to the queen's palace, please Notice the stallions that pull the queen's carriage. I hear they are incredible. 
I want to know all about that. Okay. The peacock in the barnyard said, hey, when you get to the queen's palace and you get inside, take note of all the beautiful silken tapestries and colors because I, I want to know about that. And the kitty cat said, okay. And, and the barnyard dog said, hey, when you get to the palace grounds, Please note, I understand they've got mastiffs that guard the palace grounds, and they are magnificent. And the, and the kitty cat said, okay. So they all had these requests. And so the kitty cat goes to visit the queen's palace, and finally she comes home. And the barnyard animals gather around. They're so excited. They want to hear the stories. And so they start asking, and the dog says, well, what about the mastiffs that guard the palace grounds? And the kitty cat said, oh, I forgot to take note of the of those magnificent dogs, I'm sure, but I, I didn't notice them. And the, and the horse said, well, what about the stallions that pull the queen's carriage? And the kitty cat said, I am so sorry. I forgot to really pay attention to that. And, and the peacock said, well, what about the beautiful colors and tapestries in, in, the, in the palace itself? And the kitty cat said, I am so sorry. I didn't even notice. And they said, well, did you visit the queen's palace or not? And the kitty cat said, I did. They said, well, did you see anything? And the kitty cat said, I did. Well, what did you see? And the kitty cat said, I, I, I saw a mouse under the queen's throne. Yeah. You're going to find whatever it is you're looking for. If you're looking for problems, you'll find them. If you're looking for dirt, you'll find it. If you're looking for hypocrites, you'll find them. As leaders, we need to be cognizant of that. We need to really focus on the things we want to find. Focus on those that are doing good, not those that are doing bad. Focus on those that are examples, not those that are excuses. Okay? Focus on what you want to discover and put your energy there. Um, I probably won't have time to get to this lesson. i got a whole other lesson. So let me just share key aspects of, of part of this. And some of you in business may have heard some of this. So let me give you an application in, the, in spiritual leadership. <clears throat> there was an Italian economist. This goes back a few centuries ago. Um, his name was Pareto. And, and he studied, actually initially he studied Italy. He studied the produce of their agriculture, especially like their vineyards and the winemaking business, that sort of thing. And, and he was trying to find ways to maximize their profits and their returns. And here's what he discovered in his analysis. He discovered that what they were spending 80% of their money and their time and their energy on was only giving them 20% of the return in profits. And what they were spending just 20% of their time and their money and energy, their resources on, was giving them 80% of their profits. He even applied this, the government hired him and he applied it to their acquisition of lands and development, all that. They started applying this model as an economic model uh, in Italy initially. And so his theory was this. If we can first of all discover what's giving us the most productivity and then shift our attention, shift where we're putting our resources, our time, our energy into the things that are giving us the most productivity and cut out things that are less productive then the bottom line is, you know, the overall uh, profit is going to be much, much larger, maybe exponentially. 
larger. So that was the model, and that's been picked up on, and it's being applied even here in the 21st century. Some of you probably in some business meetings or training or whatever have, have caught some aspects of this. I refined it just a little bit, but I buy into that general principle and concept. So let me explain to you how it works in leadership, in spiritual leadership in the church, okay? Uh, if I'm at a pastor's meeting, I've done this exercise before with pastors. Before I even tell the story, they even know why we're doing what we're doing. And I'll tell pastors, I say, right now, pull out a pen and a piece of paper. I want you to write down the top people in your church. Who are the top names? They don't have to say, well, let me call the office and get a list, or let me check the giving record. They know who they are. They know. And they'll write those names down. Okay. <clears throat> when they write those names down, I'll ask them. I say, okay, of the people in your church, what percentage does this represent? And invariably, it represents about 10 to 20%. Invariably. These are the top people in their church. Okay. Then I'll ask them the next question. I'll say, beside each of these names, write how much time you personally spent with each of these individuals in the last week. If you have a hard time thinking of any time you spent with these individuals in the last week, write down how much time you spent with them in the last month. And I have them go through this exercise for a very important reason. And, and, and usually it's not a whole lot amount of time normally, okay? And, and so then I'll say, okay, where did you spend your time this last week? Where did you spend your time this last month? Write down the other names of people you spent time and effort and energy and resources on and how much time you spent with them, and I have them make that list. And then I ask them, now, where you spent your time, how much return are you getting, is the church getting, is the kingdom of God getting from where you've been spending your focus, your time, your energy, your resources. Okay. This works every time. And I'll tell you why it does. It's kind of the nature of what we do. You see, we're engaged in two things here, and sometimes they compete with each other. This whole conference is called a leadership conference. I'm focusing on leadership. But we all know we are all ministers. Okay. You're not all the pastor. You're not all a licensed, credentialed preacher. But we are all ministers. That's why you're here. We are all called to do the work of the ministry, right? And so all of us are doing ministry of some kind, so we're here for ministry. The problem is ministry and leadership. Sometimes they compete with each other because our idea of ministry is completely that we are the givers and someone else is the receiver. If I'm ministering to you, I'm giving, you're receiving, okay? Leadership kind of takes it to sort of a little different arena here, all right? Leadership is not just me giving and you receiving, Now, I may still be the primary giver, but my whole motive is different. My motive is to give to you, to engage you, to mentor you, so you can come alongside me. And now instead of one giving, we got two giving. See, so there's the difference there, all right? And so that's why sometimes we need to do little exercises like this. Now, you might say, I kind of wish I had a whiteboard. Oh, there's a whiteboard. Hey, come on, man. We're in business. All right. All right, can I draw on this whiteboard? Is that right? Okay. All right, here we go. So let me do it this way. Pink, use the pink. All right. Oh, he knows what he's talking about. There's a stool. Okay. All right, let's draw it this way. All right. So here's your top 20%. 
Okay? And here's your lower 80%, right? All right. Now, th- this is going to fall true, pretty much true in, in, in every church, okay? 20% of the people in your church are giving 80% of the finances. 20% of the people in your church are doing 80% of the work. 20% of the people in your church are winning 80% of the souls. I mean, it just falls this way. It just falls this way. Now, that's Pareto's principle. I break it down a little further. Here's how I define it. I do it 20, 60, and 20. Okay? So I refine it a little bit further. And here's what I found. I found that most pastors, let's put the pastor up here. Okay? It wouldn't have to be the pastor. I'm doing this in a whole church setting. It could be the leader. Let's say you're the youth minister. So you put the youth minister here and you put your youth group in this. So it it could fit any model of leadership, all right? But I'm going to use the pastor for illustration here. So I find that most pastors, when I ask them to list the time they're spending with people, most of the time they're spending with people is actually all the way down here. It's this group right here. Now, let me tell you who falls in this category generally. These are people that are totally receivers and not givers. Okay? These are the people that are with you as long as you keep them your primary focus. But as soon as you divert your attention away, these people are gone. Now, do we write people off? No, we don't write people off. But what we do is we adjust our leadership and ministry model. And so there's a couple principles here. Um, One is whatever area you focus on as a leader, that's the area that will grow. If you keep your focus on this area, guess what? You're going to grow this area here. Okay? But it's going to be at the expense of this area and this area. All right? Now, our our goal, all of us, our goal is not to have any losses at all. That's our goal. And we know that the area most prone to loss is this area here. So that's why we, in our mind, we might not think this through rationally, but this is kind of our internal sort of motivation for why we're doing what we're doing. So we think, well, if I focus on this area, since my losses come more readily from this area, if I focus on this area, I'll minimize the losses. That might be true in the short term. But in the long term, you're actually going to hurt yourself. Because here's the thing. Everybody is going to suffer losses. Let me say it again. Everybody is going to suffer losses. You cannot prevent losses. Everybody's going to suffer losses. But what you can do is help determine where those losses come from. Because even though you don't as quickly or readily have losses in this area, or especially in this area, eventually you do. Because these people have needs too. They just are not as needy as these people. And believe it or not, even these people have needs but they'll rarely express it to you, okay? Because they'll recognize, well, they're needier than I am, and they're really needy, so yeah, let them have the pastor's attention. I'll just get along. But there's going to come a time when they really need you too, 
And if you're not there, you're going to even suffer some losses from here. Okay? So you say, all right, well, what do we do without just Xing these people off? All you do is shift the focus of your attention. So here's the way it should work. If the pastor says, you know what, I recognize this model, so I'm going to focus 80% of my time, effort, energy, and resources on this group, and I'm going to focus 20% of my time, resources, focus on this group, you say, well, you don't have anything left for this group. What's going to happen to them? No, they'll be well taken care of. Because if you focus 80% of your time and attention resource on this group, guess what? This group can spend 80% of their time on this group. Okay? And they can spend 20% of their time on this group. And guess what? This group can spend 80% of their time on this group. And so everybody's needs are being met 100%. Okay? You've just shifted the focus of how you do ministry and how you do leadership. So here's the model to follow. So evaluate yourself. We all default to this because we're all ministry-minded and motivated. And we hurt with people that hurt, and we want to help hurting people. That's normal. That's natural. That's godly. But we need to be strategic. We need to be wise in how we spend our resources. You recognize that in your money, okay? You recognize that you can't give your whole paycheck to every person you pass on the street that's holding out a cup. Your heart goes out. Your heart goes out. You want to give everything, but you know you can't. Because if you gave everything to that person holding out the cup, well, guess what? You just starved everybody that's in your household. And the Bible says if you don't take care of your own household first, you're worse than an infidel. It also says don't ignore the poor. You've got you to bless the poor. You've got to give to the poor. If you, if you give to the poor, you're, 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 uh, God is in debt to you. He's going to give back to you. But we also know we've got to be wise stewards. We've got to do things in balance, and we've got to do things properly and decently and in order, right? And, and so we've got to strategically focus and determine, here's where I'm going to spend the most of my resources, effort, and energy on. So it kind of goes back to what I said last night. God said, I didn't call you to grow a church. I called you to grow people. So if I can invest myself into equipping these people right here, meeting their needs, I've equipped them to meet the needs of these people, and they can be equipped to meet the needs of these people. Most of these people just need somebody to be a friend. They just need somebody to love them. They just need somebody to listen to them. Most of these people need that. To be honest with you, most of these people really aren't looking for answers. Most of these people are just desperate. They're just like, how do I make it to the next hour, to the next day? That's desperation. But this group can meet their needs. They don't have to be highly trained to do that. They just got to be loving and kind and give some time and give a listening ear and give a helping hand when they can. And then everybody's needs are met. All right? Again, I got whole sessions on it, but that gives you kind of a kind of a picture on that. So see the right people. And number five, do the right things. No matter what, do the right things. Number eight, my attitude is highly contagious. My attitude is highly contagious. 
the guy's sitting in the barber shop getting a haircut. He has a barber that's one of these loquacious, talkative guys. And he says, well, where are you off to this week? And the guy getting his haircut says, well, I'm headed to Italy. Barber says, no way. Whereabouts in Italy? And the guy says, I'm going to Rome. Rome. He says, I used to live in Rome. I love it. He says, are you Catholic? The guy getting his haircut said, no. He said, well, I'm Catholic. I'm Roman Catholic. He said, you know, it's every Catholic's dream to go to Rome. And uh, please tell me you're going to visit the Vatican. And the guy getting his haircut said, I am. He said, that is so awesome. He said, tell me what, 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 what airline are you flying? And he tells him the airlines, oh, you need to change airlines. He said, you know, that airline has the worst safety record there is. And they lose everybody's luggage. And they're never on time. If you do arrive and, and make it, you don't crash. They're, they're not going to be on time. You need to change airlines. And uh, he said, what hotel are you staying in? The guy said, I'm staying in such and such hotel. Oh, you need to change hotels. You know, that hotel is so overrated. He said, it, it, it's horrible. He said, he said, you definitely need to change hotels. He, he said, so is it vacation or business? The guy said, well, I'm doing business. And then if there's any time left, I'm going to do vacation. Okay, well, what's your business? You're, please tell me you're not trying to sell an American product. Well, actually, I am. That ain't going to work. The Italians, I'm telling you right now, they will not buy American products. You're wasting your time. And he said, well, I've got three days to make the deal and then hopefully one or two days uh, vacation before I come home. He says, all right, so if you get to that one or two days, I'm telling you right now, you're going to have three or four days vacation because they're going to buy your product. He says, but uh, so you're visiting the Vatican. He said, not only am I visiting the Vatican, I've got a private audience with the Pope. The barber said, oh, yeah, right, right. They tell everybody that. That's just the tourists come on. You know what an audience with the Pope is? You're going to see him. He's so far away. You've got to use binoculars to see if it's anybody even on the balcony. And even then, it might be a mannequin with somebody behind there just moving his arm like that. said, hey, don't put your stock in that, man. But, but yeah, I'll visit the Vatican. It'll, it'll be a good experience. So the guy goes on this trip. A couple weeks later, he's back in the barber chair, and the barber's cutting his hair. He says, hey, you're the guy that was going to Italy. Glad to see you changed your mind. No, no, I went. He said, oh, you did. Well, you made it there and back safely, so you did take my advice on the airline. I can see that because that other airline will not get. No, I flew that airline. He said, you were wrong, man. That's the best airline I've ever flown. They had great service on time, handled my baggage. Everything was perfect. He said, well, I was right about that hotel, wasn't I? No, actually, you weren't, he said. Uh, that hotel was, was awesome. I mean, instead of five stars, they should have had a seven-star rating if they or something like that. It was great. He said, well, what about your business deal? He said, you know what? They bought my product. I closed the deal the first day. I had four days of vacation. Barbara said, no, get out. No way. No way. He said, but you, you went to the Vatican? Yeah, I was right about that Pope thing. Huh? He said, no, actually, sir, I had a private audience with the Pope. Now, the barber, he's Catholic. He's impressed. He, he just stops cutting hair. He comes around and says, now, tell me, be straight with me. Did you really meet the Pope? He said, before God, I did. I went into his very throne room. The barber's impressed. He got down on his knees. He said, tell me all about it. He said, okay. He said, I went into the Pope's chambers. There was this long, red, royal carpet leading right up to his throne. I went up. I kneeled down. He extended his hand. Had a big ring on his hand. I kissed that ring on his finger. And then he put his hands on my head and he blessed me. The barber said, get out. The Pope himself put his hands on your head. He said, he did. Before God, he did. Well, tell me, man, what did he bless you with? Well, this is what he said. He said, my son, my son, where did you get such a lousy haircut? Your attitude is contagious. 
People catch our attitudes just like they catch something else from us by getting close to us. Be careful who you allow to get close to you. Be strategic in who you get close to. Our attitudes are contagious. So who are you close to? Let me close with this. Solomon, wisest man, richest man, wealthiest man, most powerful man, greatest architecture. I mean, he had it all. He had it all. One day, the queen of Sheba came to visit because she had heard all of these stories. And she saw all of his wealth, all of his might, all of his wisdom, all of his architecture. She was amazed. She was so amazed she fainted. But when you read the context, when she came to, here's what she said. She said, the half has not been told me. But she did not detail the wealth the power, the popularity. Here's what she said. She said, Happy are these thy servants who continually serve the king in his courts and hear his wisdom. Happy are thy servants which stand continually and hear thy wisdom. What she was more amazed with than anything was the attitude of those surrounding the king. Church growth, I think it was John Maxwell said, any church can grow by 10% if you'll just teach everybody in your church to smile. The attitude of the people. Attitude determines our altitude. In Genesis chapter 22, there's an incredible story where God told Abraham, to go offer his son Isaac on the altar. Muslims claim the same story. They just have him offering Ishmael because he said, your only son. They said, Ishmael was born first, so it must be talking about Ishmael. But it was Isaac. And God said, go offer your son. Abraham turned to the servants at the foot of Mount Moriah, and he said, you wait here. The lad and I are going to go to the top of this mountain. But notice here. What God called offering and what we call sacrifice, Abraham never did. Abraham called it worship. He said, the boy and I are going to go to the top of that mountain and we're going to worship. What God called offering and what we call sacrifice, Abraham called worship. And the Lord said, you will be the most blessed man because of his attitude. God, give us an attitude that says, you know what? I'm not even going to call it an offering. Who am I worthy to even give an offering? I'm not going to call it a sacrifice. I'm just going to call it worship. I don't got to go to church. I get to go to church. I don't got to tithe. I get to tithe. I don't got to minister, witness, evangelize, pray. I get to minister, witness, evangelize, I don't got to, I get to. I don't got to praise, I get to praise. I don't got to live for God, I get to live for God. I don't got to separate from the world, I get to separate from the world. Hallelujah. Amen. My attitude will determine my altitude.
we started that course with my father's house level two. Now we've rewritten pretty much most of it, but you could use my father's house level two. So that takes them through six months of discipleship. In addition to this, hopefully they were brought to church by someone who is their mentor. If not, we will assign them to someone in the church who is their mentor. In addition to this, we are a small groups church. So we have weekly small groups meeting, and we want to make sure they are in a small group. So these are all the various ways we try to disciple them. Let me tell you another key thing in discipling is to get your people going to district meetings. Another good reason to be part of the United Pentecostal Church International and that has you know functions and sectional functions or district functions. We just had our district ladies conference, I think either last week or the week before, and uh, and what a great event! In, in our, you know, we're probably a little larger district than yours, but we had 800 ladies at this conference, and many coming, many from my church coming, were brand new converts. In fact, I had a new convert actually got the Holy Ghost at ladies' conference. She had been baptized just probably three to five weeks ago, and she got the Holy Ghost at ladies' conference. But how reinforcing that is! She hasn't even been through our new life yet or discipleship yet. And yet she saw modeled at that conference hundreds and hundreds of ladies who are not looking like the world, but they're looking like godly, holy women. And so without her hearing one lesson yet on, on modesty or anything like that, she's seen a living example of that. And uh, one really great case in point, I had a girl, believe it or not, she actually came from the East Coast here. She was raised in Boston. I didn't know this at the time, but she was raised by two moms. She was raised by lesbians. From babyhood on, she never knew what it was to have a, a father in the home and uh, just knew to everything. And, and she got, came to the church. She got saved. I mean, right after she got saved, she went to ladies' conference. She knew nothing about nothing. I mean, she looked like the world still, of course. She knew nothing about nothing. But she came home from ladies' conference, and she wanted to testify. We have some ladies testify. She's brand new. She wanted to testify. And she said, she said I want to I say something. She said, I went to this meeting. I've never seen anything like that in my life. She said, I saw these old women on the platform. Okay, she's like, a, she's like 19 years old, right? She said, I saw these old women on the platform. You know, they were probably like in their 30s, 40s, 50s, you know. So I saw these old women on the platform. And she said, they look so beautiful. They weren't even wearing makeup and they still looked beautiful. I couldn't believe it. And they had long hair and and I thought, now here's a teenager from the world, you know. She says, I thought, whenever I get old, I want to look just like that. That was just a cool testimony, you know. She like maybe wasn't buying into it right now. But she said, when I get old, I want to look just like that. So what's neat is they have these models that are placed before them. And that can greatly accelerate you, especially in a smaller church setting or a church plant setting. Very important that we engage our people in the, in the activities of the section and of the district. Okay. So that's our particular program, New Life Discipleship. And then we have three levels of membership in our church. We have what's called a born-again member. As soon as a person's baptized, as soon as they repent, they're baptized, they receive logos, they're a born-again member of our church. They're not, quote-unquote, a legal member in a voting sense or that sort of thing. They don't even care about that at that point. But they're a, they're a baptized member of the church. And we have a, we, have a, uh, uh, we call it new birth member, born-again member. And so we have an application for them to fill out. It just basically is knowledge. I've been born again. And then on the back we have goals. And the goals are to get them through new life, get them through discipleship, and to become uh, uh, from a, from a born-again member uh, to become a covenant member of the church. 
and uh, and then we have a covenant membership uh, membership, and there are other requirements of that. And then the ultimate goal is to be a leader in the church. So we have various stages of membership. But I want to make people feel like they're part as soon as they are born again, even though we know, you know what, they're not in platform ministry yet or whatever, but uh, they need to feel a sense of belonging. So hopefully that helps. It probably didn't completely answer or satisfy, but that's kind of our model of how we do it. Uh, but as far as you personally discipling, I would say your goal is this. Okay, here uh, in another presentation, if we get to it, uh, I close with like five points. And one of those points is this. Never do personal ministry alone. Never do personal ministry alone. Okay, but not only that, not only that. Endeavor to have someone with you that you are training. You may not even be actively training them, but just the fact that they are with you. Okay, there, there's five steps to equipping leadership, basically. The first step is I model. That's where we all start with, and that's kind of the one-man band kind of deal. The second step is called I mentor. Okay, that's the hardest step. Of all five steps, the hardest step is go from step one to step two. I mentor. And let me tell you what mentoring is. It, it, it's very simple. You don't have to spend $1,000 to go to a seminar to learn to be a mentor. You don't have to buy all the books. You can if you want to, but, but, but it's, it's just this simple. Mentoring is simply saying, I won't do personal ministry alone. I'll have somebody with me. So bring somebody alongside you. Um, it could even be a young person. Just bring somebody alongside you. We have a Christian school, so if I get called to make an emergency hospital, I can stop by the school and say, hey, is there any kid done with their work for the day? I could take them for an hour and take them with me. Now, am I really trying to train them to be a pastor? No, I'm not. But I'm just going to exercise this principle that I'm not going to do personal ministry alone. And, and the best lessons are not taught. The best lessons are caught. Okay? And you catch them just by being close to somebody. So uh, have somebody with you as you're, as you're mentoring them. So I model. I mentor. Next is I monitor. And that means now they're doing it and you're with them. Uh, teaching a home Bible study. Just have somebody with you as you're teaching a Bible study. And at some point, they're going to say, hey, pastor, I think I can handle that next lesson. Okay, you know what? You do that next lesson. And you're still there, you know. So I, I model, I mentor, I monitor. The next level is I motivate. And that means they can do it, and you don't have to be there with them. You're going to be out of town, but you don't have to cancel the Bible study because they say, hey, pastor, I'll handle that lesson. Yeah, you can handle it. You do it. That's I motivate. And the last step, step five, and it completes the cycle, is I multiply. And that means they're doing it, and now they got somebody with them. So that's like your reproduction cycle. Well, that's how you want to disciple people in the church. So they're born again. I disciple them to be a disciple of Christ. But then I disciple them into ministry, and now they get to a point they're discipling somebody else. Okay, That'd be your 20% who they're doing that with you. You're not even with them. And they're not just doing it, but they're also mentoring people along with you. So you've multiplied, you know, your efforts. Another question. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, well, let me answer that question first. And, and I don't know if we're going to get time to do that next lesson or not. But the next lesson really addresses that in, in depth and detail from a biblical perspective. But let me kind of give you just an overview of it. Um, and that is this. <clears throat> Number one, you need to train your people, all the people, in these principles. Teach them these lessons. Teach them these lessons. Teach them the the Bible behind the principle. So there's a biblical basis, not just, oh, this is his idea, or this is his way of doing it. Teach them there's a Bible base. And there is that next lesson called the Jethro Principle of Leadership. And it's the story of Moses and his father-in-law Jethro and, and all of how he divided up the work and whatever. 
But the basic principle is this, that if you show your people the model and then they know where they are in that model and they're working together with you to accomplish that model. So another principle we have is in ministry, solve problems at the lowest level possible. Solve problems at the lowest level possible. Human nature is we want our problems solved at the highest level possible. We make the phone call and say, I want to talk to the president. <laughs> okay, but companies are trained. You don't get through to the president. All right? There's a progression here. And, and it's this principle of solving problems at the lowest level possible. Teach that to your people. Okay? Empower them to do ministry. Empower them to meet the needs of that person in that lower 20%. The pastor that says, nobody's going to give anybody advice except me. Well, you're setting yourself up to, to be that one-man band. So... Rather, you know, following the Jethro principle, basically the easy matters the leaders solved, the hard matters they brought to Moses. What's the difference in an easy matter and a hard matter? If you don't know the answer, it's hard. If you know the answer, it's easy. That's it. So if you can do it, it's easy. If you can't do it, it's hard. You say, hey, I need help. I mean, it's just that simple, okay? So train your people. We're going to meet the, we're, we're going to solve problems at the lowest level possible. And the other thing that goes with that, meet the need at the point of the need. Meet the need at the point of the need. Let me explain that to you. So we train our people. We train our church. We teach our church. What is the church? It's not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a name. The Bible says the church is made up of lively stones. You're a stone in the church. You're a stone in the church. You're a stone in the church. We're all stones in the church. Okay? So if somebody comes to your church and they come to you, my brother, and they say, does your church buy meals for hungry people? He should have the answer for that. He does have the answer for that because he's the church. If he can buy them a meal, yes, our church does. Let me buy you a meal after church. If he can't because he has no money, he says, you know what? Our church is not able to do that this week. Sorry. He's the church. He doesn't need to say, well, I don't know. Go talk to the pastor. Well, I don't know. Go talk. He's over evangelism ministry. Talk to No. Empower the people to meet the need at the point of the need. Okay? So nothing escalates. Solve problems at the lowest level possible. Meet the need at the point of the need. And train the people to do this. Nobody should be brought to the pastor. Okay? That violates Moses and Jethro's model. All right? Even the hard cases. It didn't say the hard cases they sent to Moses. No. It said the hard matters the leader brought to him. So the leader could say, now if he doesn't know the answer, he forgot. He says, you know what, wait right here, and I'll get right back to you. And he goes to evangelism director or, or whoever is designated. He says, hey, I got this guy. He's asking whatever. And now in our case, we do have. I mean, we got a clothing bank, and we got different things and whatever. And, and so the person, we still train them, answer that yourself personally, okay? But if you can't personally and you think maybe the church does, you say, wait right here, and then you go to Brother David because Brother David oversees our homeless ministry and say, hey, Brother David, got somebody here. They need clothes or they need a room or they need food or whatever. Uh, can we help them or no? And David's going to tell them, and they're going to go back, and they're going to go back. But nothing should escalate to the, to the pastor. I mean, it should be met right at that point or at the very next level of leadership is as a pastor – my interaction with that lower 20%, the only time that's going to occur is when we're at church. Okay? So if I can't resolve that right now, standing with you in the aisle in 60 seconds, I can't resolve it. So that's my cutoff point. Okay? 
Let me tell you what this group needs more than anything. Their number one need is spiritual. Okay. But they're usually not coming to you asking the spiritual. They're coming to you asking the natural. All right? Their focus is wrong. We've been talking about focus. Their focus is wrong. Your job is to redirect their focus from the natural to the spiritual. Okay? What good does it do if I'm fed, if I'm clothed, if I'm happy, but I'm going to hell? What good does it do if I'm naked, if I'm hungry, but I'm going to heaven? What's the story of rich man and Lazarus? Okay? Now, those are two extremes, I understand. But the choice of those two extremes is to be poor and naked and destitute and go to heaven. So the priority is spiritual. So my number one job, get them born again. We'll figure out the natural stuff later. We're not going to ignore it. Like I said, we do a lot of stuff. But that's not going to be our focus. Our focus is going to be the spiritual. And that's what God's called you to do. He didn't call you to clothe and to feed. And Jesus never clothed anybody. Think about that. There's not a record. And Jesus never fed anybody except, first of all, they received spiritual food and responded to it and sat through through the whole service. And then he fed them just so he wouldn't lose the crowd. He said, I got more to teach them. They're hungry. We don't want to take a break. Let's give them some food and we'll teach them some more. So, yeah, he fed, but that wasn't his focus. He did that to to accommodate his focus, which was to meet the spiritual need. That's what we're called to do. We're called to meet the spiritual needs. In addition to that, student handouts uh, that are fill-in-the-blank style. Um, we provide uh, PowerPoints, and we provide high-def videos. So you can operate it. You can teach any of the courses you want as a pastor, or you can have all the courses taught you know, for you on your behalf. Uh, we also are distance learning. We're the only... In fact, there are none of our Bible colleges, uh, nor does Purpose Institute, offer their entire uh, study as distance learning. Some of our Bible colleges offer a few courses as distance learning, but not their entire scope and sequence. We offer the entire scope and sequence as distance learning. You can do it at your own pace, and that's this brochure right here. If you want to have a satellite campus at your church, that's this brochure right here. So avail yourself of these brochures. Uh, there is a website, csti-sandiego.com, and it has other information. You can also, should be able to view some of the sample courses. We usually, the first two or three weeks, the courses are open. Anyone can view them. After that, they're locked so that you have to have the code. You have to be enrolled in order to view them. But I think we're like in the third week, so they may still be open right now where you actually view a couple of the courses. Uh, I personally have written probably a dozen of the courses uh, I don't teach all of them now. Uh, I probably still teach about, I don't even know, eight or ten courses. And uh, I think this year I've taught two courses this year. <clears throat> I taught uh, I taught public speaking. That's a course that I wrote a number of years ago. And I taught apologetics this last trimester, apostolic apologetics, which is a great course. There's another course I wrote that I teach, uh, I think, next year, entitled Apostolic Distinctives. And uh, so I, I think you'll appreciate and enjoy Christian Service Training Institute. All right. Well, let's. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, there is. Thank you very much. If you are under home mission status or North American mission status, you can attend free. 
I think you do have to pay the annual enrollment fee, which I think is $25. Then after that, you don't pay for anything. And, and you also, if, you're, um, if, you're, if you enroll as a distance learning student, each year you will receive a professionally uh, produced notebook that has professional divider tabs in it for each of the courses that year. And so when you complete four years of CSTI, you will have four notebooks full of notes from every lesson, every course. I mean, you talk about a resource. It's an incredible, incredible resource. And we've had a number of North American missionaries uh, uh, enroll and graduate from CSTI. We now have one of our North American missionaries who now is operating a satellite campus. And I think we're up to five satellite campuses right now. Again, this is the first year we've done satellite campuses. We're in the beta phase. If you're interested in that, we probably will carry the beta phase one more year, probably. Um, And that simply means we're working the bugs out. So we're giving that at half price if you are a satellite campus in the beta phase. So you work with us as we kind of work through any bugs. And and, and that's kind of how that operates. So we're excited about that. Thank you for that that, uh, notation. Okay, we're going to do our last session. And uh, I I am going to have to really fly through this to to try to get through it. Um, As was mentioned, I'm leaving uh, notes and so they can disperse those to you, including for these lessons. The only thing, the notes I'm leaving are the student notes. I'll have to look and see if I can find the teacher notes. Most of my stuff, I've done it so much, I don't use notes, as you can tell. And uh, so I've probably had teacher notes, but they might be, you know, 10 years old or something. I have to go find them. But uh, the student notes, the handout notes, uh, if you've got those and you got either the PowerPoint. In fact, you're welcome to use the PowerPoints. I'll leave the PowerPoints, too. So if you want to teach this to your church, you've got the PowerPoints. And obviously the blanks and the notes, all the answers come up on the PowerPoint, or you'll hear that from the CD or the recording or whatever. Okay. You're welcome. So do I turn this on here like that? Okay. Oops. There we go. Leadership 103. The Jethro Leadership Principle. Okay, here we go. I'm going I'm to really fly here. All right. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry to, in advance. I'm apologizing, but it's the only way we'll get through it. Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 26. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from morning until the evening. Everybody say, from dawn till dusk. Are there any PKs in here? That means preacher kids. Any preacher kids in here? You're a preacher kid? Any other preacher kid in here? All right. All right. You're a preacher kid? All right. You preacher kids, you know exactly what we're talking about, right? Dawn till dusk, okay? That's that line that lines up for dad, you know, the preacher after church. Well, that's what Moses was doing when his father-in-law Jethro came along and observed that. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did, now words are important again. Look at this word. He didn't say all he was doing for the people. Words are important. When he saw all he was doing to the people, okay, he said, What is this thing you're doing to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? Everybody say alone. Listen, Old Testament was Lone Ranger. New Testament is not. There's no Lone Rangers in New Testament. It's all team ministry. Jesus didn't choose an apostle. He chose 12. Those 12 did just remain 12. They got a council of 70, okay? So New Testament was all about together, doing stuff together. So he's teaching him this lesson. And all the people stand by you from dawn till dusk. Now, we always have a reason. We always have an excuse. We always have a rationale 
for why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it. And Moses had one too. Here's what he said. He said to his father-in-law, because, here's my reason, because the people come unto me to inquire of God. Did Moses have a strategy? No. He was just responding. He was just reacting to the need. That's that lower 20% over there. Because they come, what else am I going to do? <laughs> and so he's, he's killing himself. In fact, his father-in-law is pointing that out. Here's what Moses says. When they have a matter, they come unto me. I judge between one another. I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. He's teaching home Bible studies to two million people. I mean, this is Moses. This is, his, this is the way he's doing it. Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. He didn't commend him for only sleeping three to four hours a night. He didn't. He said, that's not a good program. Here's why. You're going to wear away and the people also. This thing is too heavy for you. It's too heavy for you. Listen, God didn't call you to be the Savior. And Superman is a figment of somebody's cartoon imagination. It's too heavy for you. Again, we got this treasure in these fragile vessels. He says, you're not able to perform it thyself alone. Now, I love the fact Jethro must have been a really cool guy. And I love this. He didn't just come to point out the problem or criticize. Anybody can do that. But he brought a solution. And he says, hearken now unto my voice, and I will give you counsel. And God shall be with you. In other words, God's going to confirm this. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the people the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, not private Bible studies. He's talking about the whole congregation. And show them the way wherein they must walk and the work they must do. You're doing all the work. All right, it's too heavy for you. There, there's some work. They, they got to share this load with you. They got to do, there's some work they got to do is what he's saying. Verse 21, moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men, and here's their qualifications, fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, place them over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people at all seasons. That's not a hotel chain. He's saying, look, this is not a temporary fix. This is a permanent solution. That's what he's saying. Let them judge at all seasons. Every great matter they shall bring unto thee. Every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be. Now, some of you did not even know this word was in the Bible. Easier. Say that. Easier. No, say it like this. Easier. That's not sacrilegious. You're not backslid to say that word. That's a Bible word. It's okay. It's okay to find an easier way to do it. As long as your motivation is not just so you can take your ease in Zion, but if your motivation is to be more efficient and more effective, it's okay to find an easier way to do it that accomplishes the purpose. That's what he's saying. Easier for you. They'll bear the burden with you. This is what his wife was most excited about. He said, if thou shalt do this thing and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure. His wife was excited. My husband's not going to burn out, not going to suffer a breakdown, not going to die premature. All right. And also the people will go their way in peace. You know what? They're getting frustrated because they're standing in long lines and they're being told, come back tomorrow. Moses' day has run out. The sun has gone down. All right, there's a better way to meet their needs, and they'll be at peace as well. Now, here's how we know Moses is the meekest man in the Bible. 
He listened to his father-in-law. That's how we know he's the meekest man in the Bible. And he did all that he said. He took his advice. He chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They, the leaders, judged the people at all seasons, permanent solution. The hard cases, they, the leaders, brought to Moses, didn't send to Moses, they brought to Moses every small matter they judged themselves. Again, what's the difference in a small and a great matter? If you got the answer, if you can meet the need, if you can solve the problem, it's a small matter. If you can't, you go get help. You go get advice from your leader. You take it upline to your leader. Moses let his father all depart. He went his own way into his own land. So, number one, Jethro identified the problem. The problem was burnout. And that's the problem. Yes, friends, even in church, people do burnout. Okay, we've got to be cautious of that. Psychology Day magazine, I'm not promoting them, but they did have this article. It said 90% of people who come for advice just need someone to listen to them. The other 10% need medical help. I clipped that article, and I've saved that for these years because I found my out right here. I said, you know what? I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not equipped to meet that 10% need. But you know what? I am more educated than just not being educated at all. I'm too educated to be somebody's listening post. So that made me feel very free. All right, here's what Jethro does. He defines the pastor's role. Number one, he said, Moses, your number one duty should be prayer. This is where he says, be thou for the people to Godward. That's prayer. That thou mayest bring their causes unto God. Let me ask you a question. Moses was a married man. He had kids. If he's meeting the people from dawn till dusk, when was he praying? He wasn't. So Jethro says, hey, what is number one has fallen off your list. Okay? And how many of us have felt like that at times as well? All right, we let other things crowd crowd in. So Moses is redefining the, I'm sorry, Jethro is redefining the ministry priorities for Moses. Number one is prayer. Any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. Have you prayed? Number two, he said, number two, after prayer, give yourself to preparation. This is where he says, thou shalt teach them the ordinances and laws. How are you going to do that unless you study, unless you prepare, you know? Now, I, I do around that, do these seminars. I've done this for, for many years. I've got a lot of these, and, and people, and these have been refined over the years. So people say, man, that's so cool. Man, I wish my pastor would teach every Bible study like that. Well, I'm going to tell you, I don't teach every Bible study like this as a pastor. It takes countless dozens, if not hundreds of hours to produce something like this, okay? But the point is, whatever you're going to produce, it's going to take a time commitment behind it. So number one, you've got to have time to pray. Number two, you've got to have time to prepare, okay? A lot of time to prepare. So when I get, when I get saints, like, come to tell me something like that, I just kind of want to kick them. I don't, but I just kind of want to kick their shit. But, but here's what I do say. I say, you know what? If you would help your pastor to not have to deal with people's personal problems throughout the week, he'd probably have more time to pray and prepare lessons like this right here. Hello? Amen. Line up on line, precept up on precept, here a little, there a little. Now, we're in America. We don't like it this way. We like here a lot, there a lot. That's not God's way. It takes time. It takes time. If there were more perspiration in preparation, there'd be more inspiration in presentation. All right, so number one, prayer. Number two, preparation. Number three, he gave him the leadership 
He said, you've got to lead. He said, thou shalt show them the way wherein they must walk. So you need to be their example. You need to model this. To share a message that moves people, it's got to be one that moves you. So you've got to be the number one example as leader. And then number four, he said, you've got to equip the people. This is where he says there's a work that they must do. Okay, here's how you equip or empower people. Oh, here's that verse I mentioned yesterday. Exodus 32, 36-2. I love this. Moses called every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even everyone whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work and do it. Is that awesome or what? So wisdom is seeing the work that needs to be done and putting forth your hand to do it. Bible calls that wisdom. That's pretty awesome. All right. In the New Testament... There's a book of Acts model of leadership that parallels the story of Jethro and Moses. In Acts 6, 2, the 12 apostles called the multitude of disciples on them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They can't do it all. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, so that we can give ourselves continually to prayer and to ministry of the word that kind of parallels that Jethro principle to to Moses. So he's saying, okay, you're not going to have a line of people. You're not doing a full on counseling center from dawn till dusk, but you pray and you prepare so you can teach the people publicly. Do your counseling from the pulpit (laughs) is what he's saying here. And then you empower other leaders who can then do what you are doing and meeting people's needs individually. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 puts it to us another way. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But we need to realize what he's actually saying here. First of all, the word perfecting in just about every other uh, translation than the King James, which I'm using, it uses the word equipping. Perfecting, it uses the word equipping. Now, any of you involved in the military or any type of training like that, know that 90% of everything you do is equipping, so that 10% is to do the mission. But how would it be if you, like, equipped, 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 and you never got to do the mission? You never got to do what you were equipped to do. How frustrating would that become, or boring would that become? So at some point, if you're equipped, you need to be empowered so you can go do what you were equipped to do. Okay? So... Here's, here's really what is being said here. What's being said here is it's the preacher's job to perfect the saints, all right, to equip the saints, to perfect the saints. Saints don't take it well when they correct one another. Kids don't take it well when they correct one another. If mom or dad's doing the correcting, that's okay. But my siblings aren't going to correct me, all right? Saints are the same way. If pastor's correcting me, that's okay. But another saint, I ain't going to take correction from you. Okay, so it really is the pastor's job to do the correcting, the equipping, the perfecting. All right. But now if we're equipping them, what are we equipping them for? We're equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Okay. now, what is the work of the ministry? Now, here's my proposal to you. The work of the ministry is basically everything else that takes place outside this pulpit. All right? To have church here, it's a whole lot more than just what goes on in the pulpit. Now, what goes on in the pulpit, we could arguably say, well, that's the most important part, and I think it is. But you can't even have that part unless there's a whole lot of other parts 
that went on to get to this part. I mean, somebody had to come and turn the lights on early and turn the heat on and vacuum and straighten chairs and replenish the restrooms and print a bulletin and make sure things are clean and neat and nice. And, and I mean, there's a whole lot that goes on into it. There's music. they got to practice, and, and they got to make sure equipment's working and, and PAs. And there's a whole lot, right, that goes into it. There's a projector, and there's a program, and there's, there's just a whole lot that goes into it. There's greeters, and there's follow-up, and, and there's letters, and somebody's got to pay the bills, and, and somebody's got to do the advertising, and there's just a whole lot that goes into it. Everything outside the pulpit, I call that the work of the ministry. And guess what? The more we can free the preacher to where he can just focus on the pulpit, the better pulpit we're going to have, the better preaching we're going to get, the better lessons we're going to get. But that happens when we all say, hey, preacher, let me lend you my hands, all right, so you can stay in the pulpit. I'll push that vacuum cleaner. I'll pay that light bill. I'll fix that restroom toilet, okay? I'll do that so you can do this, all right? It's not that one's better than another or higher than not at all. It's just every member of the body has got to function together for the good of the whole body. And so we're saying, you know what, you do that, and then that way I'll do this, is what we're saying. And that's what they said in the New Testament, and that's what Jethro's telling Moses as well. Now, what's the end result? Edifying of the body of Christ, that means to grow. There's your New Testament church growth formula right there. Preachers, do what God's called you to do and what only you can do. Saints, do what God's called you to do and what the preacher's equipping and empowering you to do. And if we'll do our job, he grows the church. We don't grow it. He grows the church. If we'll do our job, be in our place. Yes, sir, that's all in the notes. You got it. Amen. Now, here's what John Wooden said. He won 10 NCAA basketball championships at UCLA or Los Angeles, seven in a row. And here's what he said. He said, the guy who puts the ball through the hoop has 10 hands. Now, he's saying it's a team effort. Only one guy might have got that score by his name, but it took the whole team to do it. You can take the best player in the world, but if he doesn't have a team around him, anybody can beat him. A high school team can beat the pro player if he doesn't have teammates around him. Okay, it takes 10 hands. Alex Haley wrote the book Roots. That's his house in the top right. And he had a little writing studio there, and he had a picture like this one. This is not the picture, but a similar picture there with, uh, hanging on the wall. And it was a picture of a turtle sitting on a fence post, and the picture has this caption. If you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, one thing you know for sure, he did not get there by himself. <laughs> Whatever your idea of success is or reaching the top, if you ever get there, you didn't do it by yourself. All right, it's a team effort. There's a lot of people involved here. I love what Teddy Roosevelt said. He said, the best leader is the one who has sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep from muddling with them while they do it. And that's a picture of him there with his rough riders. So here's the five-step equipping process that I referred to before. Number one, I model. means I do it. Number two, I mentor. That means I do it and you are with me. Okay? Number three is I monitor. That means you do it, and I'm with you, all right? When my son, my son, my son is now 32, and when my son was about, uh, I don't know, between 8 and 11 probably, he was a champion uh, junior Bible quizzer, high score in the nation, I think two years running, just sharp as a tack. My son is very different from me, looks different, wants to be different, act different, all that, and uh, 
And, and one difference in my son and me is my son, he, he really has a photographic memory. People think I do. I don't at all. That's why I use computers because that's my memory right there. <laughs> but he really does. And this frustrated us in Bible quizzing days because we had schedules for him to memorize and reference and all of that, and he would fall way behind schedule. And finally, we just have to, you know, crank the pressure up and say, okay, you know, ultimatum time. And, uh, and he would go to his room a couple hours' time. He would come out, and he had memorized a whole week or two weeks' worth of material. And we said, no, there's no way you could have done it. Yes, sir, test me. And, we t- and sure enough, he had. And uh, that was really kind of frustrating. And, uh, but uh, anyway, there was, I, I was traveling a lot, and, and he, was, he was probably about 11 at this time. And, and I'd been gone a lot. And I had a trip in my own district. At that time, we were all one district. California was all one district, 1,000 miles long. And Brother Price was our superintendent at the time. He asked me to go to every sectional conference and do a leadership session at every conference. So I sat down with Brother Price, and I said, well, what are you looking for? And, and, and I just kind of tailor-made something that was what he wanted covered. And so I made up this lesson. It was a two-week long. We got 13 sections so, and 1,000 miles. So it's a, it's a two-week long, a uh, little more than two-week long you know, travel trip. So the second week of that, I, my son was out of school, and uh, it must have been Easter break or something. And I said, hey, why don't you travel with me? Just thought, you know, this would be father-son bonding time. About the third night, my son says, Dad, we're getting ready in a hotel. He says, Dad, he says, are you going to do the same thing tonight you've been doing every night? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you change it? I'm sick of that already. Every preacher needs a son, I'll tell you that. Keep this straight. I said, you know what, son? Believe it or not, I'm sick of it too. He said, well, why don't you change? I said, well, you don't understand. This is what I've been asked to do. I'm just doing what I'm asked to do. It's by design of our superintendent. This is what he wants. And each night, even though, you know, we've heard it and seen it before, we're tired of it, but it's a new audience. It's new to them. So I'm trying to explain this to him. He says, Dad, he says, I know what you're going to say before you say it. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. And uh, he said, in fact, he said, I could do your whole presentation. I said, yeah, you probably could. I said, tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'm tired. Why don't you do the presentation tonight, and I'll give you the offering. He said, you mean it? I said, I mean it. He said, how much is the offering? <laughs> Negotiator. Well, they didn't really give me an offering each night, but I knew they were going to give me something. So I just kind of said, you know, I don't. it'll probably be probably 100 bucks, probably. A hundred bucks? Yeah, you'd give me a hundred dollars? I said, yeah. You do the presentation, I, I give you a hundred dollars. You're on. Now he's all excited. Oh, before that, he said, could I stay in the room tonight while you go? I said, no, we're in a strange city. I can't leave an 11-year-old kid by himself in a hotel. You're going with me, you know. So now he's excited to go. So we get there, get there early. I'm setting up a projector and stuff, and, and he's helped me. He's all excited until, you know, ministers start trickling in and more and more, and pretty soon I'm talking to everyone's, and then I feel a little tug on my coat, you know. I'm just ignoring that. I'm just talking. He's tugging my coat hard. Dad, Dad, Dad. And so finally, what? He says, what we talked about tonight. We were just kind of joking about that, right? <laughs> yeah, every missionary family, no doubt, goes through that multiple times. Now, I didn't take my son with the intention to mentor him, you know, in the ministry. But the whole point is just the fact that he was with me, it happens automatically. That's why I said it doesn't take a book or a seminar to figure out how to mentor. It's just saying, you know what, I'm not going to do personal ministry alone. I'm going to have somebody somebody with me, okay? And uh, so I mentor, I monitor. That means now you do it 
and I'm with you. Maybe you've heard the story, but this guy that was really popular speaking was a doctor, and he was a high demand on the Toastmaster circuit, and he, he was he was very successful. He had a limousine and a chauffeur, and so they're driving to a new town, a new you know place he's never spoke before. And uh, the chauffeur says, hey, doc, he says, so which speech are you giving tonight? And the doctor told him, and he said, that's my favorite speech. Like my son, he says, I've got that one memorized. And the doctor said, really? So let me hear you. So the old chauffeur's driving along. He just launches into the speech. Not only does he have it memorized, I mean, he's got the voice inflections down, and, and, and he's got the facial expressions, and he's got the gestures, and he's really good. The doctor's impressed. He said, hey, tell you what, you want to have fun tonight? He said, they don't know me at this venue except by name and reputation, but they've never seen me before. He said, why don't we switch places and you give the speech and I'll be the chauffeur. And the chauffeur said, you mean it? You want to try it? He said, yeah, let's try it. Let's have some fun. So, okay. They pulled over. They switched places. The doctor got up, drive the car and the chauffeur got in the back. They pulled up in front of city auto, civic auditorium and, 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 you know, doctor in the chauffeur's place gets out and opens the door for the chauffeur in the doctor's place. And, and, uh, and they said, welcome doctor. So-and-so. And they just usher him right on in and doc goes and parks the car and sits in the back and, comes to the time they had introduced, we're happy to have the esteemed doctor so-and-so with us, and, and we want him to come right now. And he steps up, the chauffeur does, and he launches into it. Nobody has a clue. I mean, it's perfect. It's spot on. But then something happened that he had never seen happen before. Somebody in the audience interrupted the speech with a question. And it was a very difficult technical question. And there was a pause, a silence. And the chauffeur looked out there and he said, sir, he said, I'm amazed in all my years giving these speeches. <laughs> he says, not one time has anybody ever interrupted me in the middle of my speech with a question until now. And to think that it would be you, an obvious upstanding member of this community, and that you would interrupt my speech with a question that is so elementary, even my chauffeur sitting on the back row could answer that question right now. <laughs> He's a sharp cookie right there. i got to give it to him, okay? Amen. Well, that's the I monitor stage, all right? You're doing it, but I'm there to pick up the fumble in case you drop the ball, okay? All right, so that's I monitor. Number four is I motivate it. That's you do it. I don't have to be there. And like I said before, to complete this whole cycle is I multiply. Not only are you doing it, but now you've got somebody else with you. And so now you're – every home Bible study teacher – needs to be taught this. They need to be told, look, you've not successfully completed this study, not just when you get them in the water or they receive the Holy Ghost, but when you have them teaching a Bible study and you no longer even have to be with them to do it and they have somebody else with them that they're training. That's when you've really successfully completed this Bible study model. All right, then the third thing is that Jethro gave Moses the organizational plan. In verse 21, he said, choose leaders. Thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Now, here's here's the principle behind this. No single leader was personally responsible for more than ten people at a time. See? The leader of tens, well, they're responsible for ten people. The leader of fifties, they're responsible for five leaders of ten. The leaders of hundreds, they're responsible for two or more leaders of 50 or maybe up to 10 leaders of 10. And the leaders of thousands could be responsible for up to 10 leaders of 100. 
The point is that no one leader was directly responsible for more than 10 people at a time. I found that model to be a very good model to follow. In my own life personally, I've had experience. My pastoral staff has varied from between 8 to 12. And to be honest with you, when I'm at 10 or 11 or 12, I know, in fact, to be really honest with you, I'm not sure I'm really effective even at 8. Probably 6 is a more ideal for me to actually be meeting the needs personally of six leaders, okay? Um, When we use our small group model, we use something like that. We say we want our small groups to average 10 to 12, and then we need to want to look to multiply them. And, And so following that model, so here's what I would say to a church planter. I get this question a lot. They say, when do we start, like, organizing? I mean, when you start out, you're the one-man band. You're doing it all, you know. At what point do I actually start appointing leaders, okay? I would say once you reach 10 people, you need to start organizing. And organize kind of with this model in mind, all right? Because no one person really is capable of of effectively meeting the needs of more than 10 people at a time. And again, you can vary that according to your personality and abilities. Like I said, I'm probably most effective with about six. All right, and uh, and and you, if you get experience, as you get experience, you'll realize where your levels of effectiveness are. And uh, so, just a good recommendation here. So this is the organizational plan that Jethro gave to Moses. And then here are the qualifications. He said, provide able men, such as number one was fear God. <clears throat> when he says to fear God. I believe he's talking about submission. Men of God of authority are men under authority. Whenever someone says, I do not understand, maybe it's because they're not standing under. You will not understand until and unless... You're standing under divinely appointed authority in your life. And by the way, I've got a whole other lesson on this, on the power of divine order, and that is that there are three manifestations of God's authority in earth. And they're all began right there in Genesis 1. Okay? The three manifestations of God's authority in earth. The Spirit of God moved. That was the first manifestation. So, number one, spiritual authority. Then God said, he spoke the word. You've got, you've got biblical authority, spiritual authority, biblical authority. And number three, that God gave dominion to Adam. Now you've got human authority. So you've got spiritual authority, biblical authority, human authority. It's like a tripod. It's amazing to me that here we are in the 21st century, and they make, like, survey equipment, you know, get satellite signals and has fine optics. I mean, some of these cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yet they're still putting these instruments on the same platform that they forever use called the tripod. The tripod is the most stable, consistent platform. You know, I thought we might have a tripod here, but we don't. We got monopod. Well, there's a tripod right here. All right, here's a tripod right here. Let me ask you a question. It's got three legs. Which of those legs is most important? I'll tell you which one's the most important. The one you try to take away. That becomes the one that's most important. 
or the one that's weakened or damaged, right? That becomes the one that's most important. So we've got three manifestations of God's authority in the earth. Spiritual authority, biblical authority, human authority. Which of those is most important? The one you try to take away. The one that's weakened. The one that's damaged. Probably in the 21st century, it's most often human authority. Someone says, well, I'll do what God says. Well, I'll do what is word, but I'm not listening to any man. Then you're not listening to God. You won't have understanding until unless you're standing under. Spiritual authority, biblical authority, human authority. God never operates in the earth outside human authority. When God himself said, I'm going to come personally to this earth, God's not a man. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. But when that almighty, powerful, creative spirit and that force said, I'm going to come to earth, how did he come? As a man. You say, I'm not going to listen to a man. That's what they were saying. And so God said, okay, I'm going to come as a man because you are going to listen to me as a man. Spiritual authority, biblical authority, human authority. Um, Illustration, I'm not going to take time on that one. All right, qualification number two, men of truth. This speaks to integrity. Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Men of integrity. Henry Ford said, quality means doing it right when no one is looking. Men of integrity. Choose leaders of integrity. And number three, there were three qualifications. The third qualification was hating covetousness. This speaks to humility. I love what Billy Cole says about humility. He said, humility is not self-abasement. It is exalting others. For the ten, he said, humility is taking rejection without resentment and praise without pride. That's humility. Now, why do you suppose Jethro told Moses these are the three qualifications? <clears throat> when he says hating covetousness, you say, well, that's redundant. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. He took it to another level. He said hating covetousness. The reason I believe why is because one of the greatest temptations for a leader is to covet another leader's position. So he said, you choose leaders who are not coveting position. You choose leaders who are looking at this as a responsibility and accountability. They're not looking at the privilege. They're looking at the responsibility side of leadership. And here are their responsibilities. Now, he gives them four responsibilities. And notice how this parallels what he was doing originally and then what Jethro said he should be doing. He reprioritized Moses' ministry plan. And now he gives some of those priorities to the leaders. He says, you choose leaders, place leaders, thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Number one, they are to minister to the people. That's what Moses had been doing. (laughs) That's what Moses was doing from dawn till dusk. He took it completely off Moses' list and put it on number one on the leader's list. So, you know, back over to that model over there to say, Pastor, don't focus on that lower 20%. We're not writing that 20% off. But we're saying others will focus on that 20%. Okay? Going to take that off your list. Going to put it on somebody else's list. It's going to be more efficient here. As the church grows, this is both cause and effect. As the church grows, the pastor's hands-on ministry decreases while the congregation's hands-on ministry increases. This is both cause and effect. You can see this readily. You can say, well, yeah, I know as the church grows, that's going to have to happen. Okay, that's effect. 
but you need to make it cause. You need to say, you know what, if I can strategically start initiating this now, this can help facilitate growth. It's not just a reaction to growth, but it's a facilitator of growth. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've got to care for the people. Number two, he told the leaders, number one, minister the people. Number two, be a problem solver. Problem solver. We don't need problem discoverers. We need problem solvers. Now listen, every leader, every person really carries two buckets. One bucket is full of water. <clears throat> the other bucket is full of gasoline. Here's how this works. You come up on a little flame of contention. How do little flames of contention start? Usually two flinty tongues sparking against each other. Get a little flame of contention. That's right. And you get, to, you get to choose which bucket you use. Are you going to use the bucket of water and just douse that thing? Or are you going to use the bucket of gasoline and, hey, everybody, look at this. That's one way you determine who's a leader and who's not. Leaders will just ditch the gasoline bucket. They'll carry two buckets of water. They're putting out little flames of contention before they become conflagrations. Number three, responsibility of these leaders is to be accountable. Responsibility without accountability is futility. But responsibility with accountability is credibility. And that's what leadership means today is credibility. Be accountable. And by the way, accountability in the kingdom of God and the world, kingdom of man, is opposite. God's ways are opposite man's ways. In, in man's kingdom, in your secular, secular world, accountability comes from the top down. Okay? And so you have peer re- you have a, a, a job re- performance reviews. You have performance reviews. You're being held accountable to processes and whatever. It comes from the top down. What that encourages, though, that encourages employers, or I'm sorry, employees to look for loopholes and cover for one another because the accountability flows from the top down. Okay, let's hide this from the from the top. All right. In the kingdom of God, accountability doesn't work that way. Accountability works from the bottom up. So your leaders are the ones not who wait for the pastor to come and make them accountable. They go to the pastor and they make themselves accountable. So it's like the leader. I come back into town. This happened. I come back into town and one of my top leaders says, hey, pastor, I need to meet with you. Okay. And he's a top 20%. He said, I think I blew it when you were gone. He said, something came up and, and I made a decision and this is what I said. And, this, and later I got to thinking, ah, I don't think that's what pastor would have said or how he would have done it. I think I blew it. And he told me the situation. I said, yeah, I think you blew it too. Uh, I'll tell you what, here's what we're going to do about it. So I, I wasn't punitive. He made himself accountable. He didn't cover. He didn't hide. He didn't gloss over. He was open and honest. We're working together. It's a team effort. I said, okay, you did blow it. Here's how we're going to fix that. Let's do this and this and this. And we work together to fix and remedy the problem. Now, if he had hid that and covered over and it got exposed later down the road, I probably couldn't have responded in the restorative way that I responded. I probably had to be a little bit more punitive in that. You see the difference there? So leaders make themselves, they're looking for accountability. I have more people coming asking to be accountable to me than what I can keep up with. I can't even keep them accountable. I mean, I've got too many people I'm dealing with and things and whatever. But those leaders, those top leaders, they make themselves accountable. So you want to be a leader in God's kingdom? Make yourself accountable. Don't wait to be held to account. You make yourself accountable. And number four, teach God's statutes. Now, notice 
this is the only thing that seems to be both on Moses' list and the leader's list. Okay? But the difference is this. The difference is Moses was praying and studying to teach and equip the congregation at large. Whereas now these leaders are doing what Moses was doing one-on-one. So Moses was teaching and preaching the congregation. The leaders were teaching home Bible studies and mentoring, basically. Okay? Now, there's some, there's some uh, things, though, that are, are rules in this. All right? And here's the first rule, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things that thou hast heard of me. This is the Apostle Paul talking, writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, what you've heard of me. Now, look at this. This is key. Among many witnesses. He's telling Timothy, you reteach what you've heard me teach publicly. You teach privately what I've taught publicly. You don't teach privately what you've learned privately. Okay? So we'll be in meetings. We'll be talking. We'll be discussing. We'll discuss the pros, the cons. Sometimes I will take an adversarial position in a meeting, even though it's not my position or even though I disagree with it, just because nobody else is, and we need to look at every angle of the matter. And so I'll just take an adversarial position. I did this in Bible college a lot, had a lot of fun with it. Uh, one of my key protagonists was uh, Talmud's French and, uh, and David Norris. These guys have gone, they're brains. I'm just the agitator, I guess. I don't know. They've gone on to write books and get PhDs and do all this great stuff, and here I am just preaching and teaching the Word of God. But anyway, we used to go around and around, and I loved it. I would take positions I didn't even believe in. But I just get them going. I get them all riled up. I told Talmans recently, I said, you owe me for some of those books you've written because I'm the one that drew that out of you. You've got you to remember that. You know? <laughs> but the point is that you don't reveal in public what's been discussed in private. You only teach privately and publicly as, as being someone under a leader what you've heard that leader teach and preach publicly. And you don't preach your opinion. You preach what you've heard that leader preach. If you disagree, you keep it to yourself. And maybe that disagreement will work itself out and you'll come to say, oh, now I know why he was saying or doing it that way. Or if not, and you're now some on your own, your own pastor, and well, you can do it the way you want to do it. But when you're there standing under, you've, everything's got to line up. You've got to come out there saying the same thing. The Bible says that the apostles and the leaders, they would all come of the same mind and they would say the same thing. And that's really important for this unity thing. So he says, what you've heard of me among many witnesses, commit thou to faith when they shall be able to teach others also. Now, let me close with this. Four things to purpose. Purpose number one, never do personal ministry alone. Never do personal ministry alone. I've talked about that already. Number two, never give public praise of your personal ministry success. Let me illustrate that. I fly back into town. True story. I fly back into town and... Uh, and, and, and I get a call, emergency, you know, emergency, uh, guy dying in the hospital. And, uh, well, okay, all right, that's fine. Um, I'm not there, can't do anything about it. Uh, Danny was his home Bible study teacher. And uh, so Danny comes and tells me the story. He says, Pastor, says, I went there. They already said he, he's at the point of death. The family's in the hallway talking to the doctor, making arrangements. And I said, can I go in? They said, well, he's, he's already, actually he had died. I'm sorry, he had already, he had just died. And they said, well, he's just died. And Danny said, well, can I just go in? They said, okay. So Danny goes in, he's with the guy. He's just praying, oh God, oh God, you know. And, and, and all of a sudden the guy coughs and sputters and looks up and sits up and said, Danny, what are you doing here? 
And Danny said, well, I'm just, I'm just here visiting and praying. And, and, uh, and Danny rushed out in the hall. He says, he, he's, he's awake. He's talking. They said, look, this is not the time for this. this it's not time for rude jokes. And, and all. So, no, I'm, he, he is. They rushed back in. Sure enough, he had come back to life. And uh, God spared his life. It's an amazing thing. He'd already been proclaimed dead. So, now, here's the deal. You know, if I tell the story of that happening to me, okay, people are going to shout, run the aisles, get excited. But guess what's going to happen about midnight? My phone's going to start ringing. Pastor, I just feel like if you go pray for my Uncle Ted. I know a lot of people pray for him before, but just feel like if you'd pray for him, God will really do something. And about 2 o'clock, I'm going to another phone. Hey, Pastor, if you go pray for Harry, and, you know, and it's going to go on and on. So, now, I've had things happen, but I'm not going to tell my story. I'm going to tell Danny's story. Let him call Danny at midnight. No, that's really not the motivation either. See, the point is, they won't call Danny. You know why? Danny's a new convert. He's not a preacher. He's just a home Bible study teacher. They're thinking, if Danny could do that, I could do that. Well, hello, that's what we're trying to get across, isn't it? <laughs> if Danny could do that, I could do that. If the preacher does, they say, well, that's because he's the preacher. That's because he's the pastor. That's because he's the... So I'm going to say my ministry success stories, if I have any, for when I'm with ministers and motivate them. Hey, we ministers can do some things. But I'm going to say with the whole congregation, I'm not going to tell my personal ministry successes. I'm going to look for their stories. And so as a pastor, I'm always looking for people's stories in my congregation, and I'm retelling their stories. I want to make them heroes. Make them heroes. Empower the people. Empower the people. Does that make sense? It's because of this. What gets rewarded gets done. Okay? What gets rewarded gets done. You want more home Bible studies taught? Make heroes out of your home Bible study teachers. Okay? What I want as a district superintendent, SoCal District with 26 million people and less than 100 churches, what I want is more churches started. So guess what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to make heroes out of our church planners. I call them God's Navy SEALs. That's what I call them in our district. I do. I mean, I just try to make heroes out of them. We give them special attention, special acclaim, special seating, special privileges, special everything. Because what gets rewarded gets done. Okay, I'm just operating off that principle. So praise others. Number three, solve problems. I already shared this. At the lowest level possible. So turn that model upside down in your church. Solve problems at the lowest level possible. And number four, I shared this as well, meet the needs at the point of the need. All right, questions. Oh, yes. Yes, what I said was that submission and agreement are not the same thing. And, in fact, you don't really know you're practicing submission until you have a disagreement. It's the disagreement that allows you the opportunity to practice submission. Okay? It's when we can't. Now, obviously, we always push towards agreement. If we can get to agreement, that's awesome. But we're not always going to get to agreement. Here's how it works in a marriage. It happens every Sunday in most marriages. The first question between a husband and wife after Sunday church is... Where are we going to go to eat? Right? And and here's kind of the way the conversation goes many times. I don't care wherever. 
You decide. No, 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 you. Okay. Let's go eat Mexican food. No, I ain't feeling like Mexican food today. You just said you didn't care. Yeah, I don't care, but just anything else but Mexican food. Well, then you decide already. All right. Let's go eat seafood. I don't feel like fish myself. Well, you said you didn't care either. This thing goes back and forth and back and forth. And finally, now, boys and girls that may not be married, I want to give you hope. Every now and then, the question's asked, and they says, I kind of feel like I tell you. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking about spaghetti factory. That's exactly what I had in mind. And at that moment, boys and girls, as husband and wife, you have reached marriage nirvana. It's like we are on the same wavelength. This is so wonderful. But, boys and girls, that only happens once every oftentimes. Most of the time, it's this other back and forth, and you can't find agreement. And so how do you resolve that? Submission. Someone finally just says, well, let's just go here. Okay. And you submit. So, yeah, submission is practiced really when there's disagreement. When there's disagreement, yeah. Yes, sir. That's a really good question. Let me repeat that question. He said, we know that faithfulness is a primary key for someone filling a leadership role. But what if someone's really good at what they do, and they can really do that good, but they're really not faithful? So what do you do? Okay. <clears throat> very, very good question. All right, here, here's my answer for that. In many instances, most instances, certainly instances like this, as a leader, you have to weigh out, and here's how I do it in my mind, exactly how I do it. I try to weigh out risk versus reward. Risk versus reward. And you got to weigh that out, okay? And is it going to fall more on the liability side or more on the reward side? And so that's a really subjective, subjective thing. Especially when you're starting out and you have less options, you have to be less, you know, selective and use what you got. Just use what you got. But as you grow and you have more options, then choose your better options. So if I have no one else that can do the job, and the job has to get done, then I can use that unfaithful person as long as I'm not setting them up as an example. That's the key, okay? Is there a way I can utilize their talent, their ability, what they have to offer without it weakening my foundation, my position, you know, that, that I'm trying to, the credibility, yeah. And so that's what you got to weigh out, how you can make something happen. So, for example, I try to protect my platform. I try to make my platform, and again, as you're first starting out, you can't completely even do that either, okay? Uh, but I try to protect my platform. So my platform is going to be my model. I'm not even going to try to control what's in the pew. Just forget it. I can't do that anyway. I'm just going to preach it and live it and model it. But I can control my leadership. I can control my platform. And so I'll have a different standard uh, for that. So, um, yeah, it, there's not a cut-and-dried you know, definitive answer other than you got to weigh out that risk versus reward and just make sure that you're not, you know, undermining what you're trying to build in the future by setting someone up as an example when they're really going to be somebody's excuse. And, uh, yeah, good, really good question. Someone else? Any questions? Yes, sir. <coughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, a very good question about how <clears throat> about criticism and about how you help other people to receive criticism in a in a constructive way is basically what you're asking. <clears throat> really good question. And different people have different uh, uh, abilities to to deal with this or not. I, I'm thinking right now as you're talking, even in my pastoral staff, I've got one pastoral staff member in particular I'm thinking about. He has a really difficult time receiving criticism. So I, I think the first thing as a leader is to figure out, you know, to what capacity can this person receive criticism and it be constructive versus it being destructive. And it really comes down to his attitude, what I taught about. So I got to work on his attitude. Um, one thing that can help is to teach lessons, train people on, on the subject, on, on how to deal with criticism and, and come up with lessons. You can do research and come up with lessons. I've done lessons on it. Uh, one of the first things that I teach in that is, you know, consider the source. That's one of the first things I do, consider the source. Um, the higher, I remember I was going through a really, really traumatic time in my life at one point, and I got a, I got a call from Anthony Mangan. It was so, we, we don't converse hardly ever at all. It was just kind of out of the blue, but it was so um, uh, encouraging to me. And he said, Brother Hodge, I know you're going through something, da-da-da-da-da. So I've been praying for you. I had a burn for you. He said, I just felt to share this with you. He said, remember this. The tallest trees catch the most wind. You know, and at the time, that was just really reaffirming to me because I was trying to spin myself with the kingdom of the Lord and whatever, and I, and I was facing some severe criticism. And, uh, and I took that to heart. That, that was encouraging. So the first thing that I do is consider the source. And in that case, consider the source. I mean, in fact, consider the source. All those that were criticizing me at the time, they have left the UPC. They're doing their own thing. And they were accusing me of being disloyal to the UPC and accusing me of trying to start my own movement, do my own thing, whatever. It's like it's the opposite, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, so number one is consider the source. Consider the source. Uh, if it's someone that you value their opinion, you need to really take that to heart. But even if it's like an enemy, you know, I was reading again just this last week, rereading the story of David when he was with his mighty men and the guy came out and started throwing rocks at him and cursing him and kicking dust on him, you know, remember the story? And David's mighty men are going to go cut his head off because they were offending, you know, their leader. And David stopped him. And they said, you know what? Leave him alone. Perchance this is God. He just wants to keep me humble. And uh, so, so these are factors that I use. Number one, consider the source. Number two, even if the source doesn't line up to where I'd say, hey, you know, that's a valid criticism because he wouldn't tell me that unless it was valid. He loves me and he cares for me or whatever. Even if it's somebody with an ill motive or an enemy, then I'm still going to consider that. And, and maybe it's God's way of pointing out a blind spot that I have. Um, so I, I would just, I, I think to help others, I think teaching on the topic, um, I'll, I'll tell you where our, where our staff is kind of reacting a little bit right now is, uh, is we came up with an idea that all of our pastoral staff, uh, we printed little eval forms and we would start evaluating each other on every message and every lesson. So we're not asking the whole church, the church's not even aware of this but just in our pastoral staff, that we'd start evaluating each other. We do that in, like, public speaking classes or whatever. But I had a staff member, pastoral staff, really react to that. I guess he felt like he was beyond that. And why should people be evaluating me? I'm already established and whatever, whatever, you know. And, and he's one that's really sensitive to, to criticism. 
And uh, but this is this is to be constructive criticism. The motive and the intent is what determines whether it's constructive or destructive. Number one, but number two, beyond that, it's it's my attitude, how I respond to it. Even if their motive or intent was to tear me down, I can still turn that into constructive criticism for myself if I'll have a right attitude about it. But if I don't have a right attitude about it, I might reject what really was intended to be constructive criticism. So I think just teaching along that line, getting it out in the open, talking about it. Thank you. Let me give you a rule of thumb there, and and I'll probably close on this because I see we're out of time. Let me give you a rule of thumb on this. Um, The Bible says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands in the Lord. It doesn't just say wives submit to your husbands. It doesn't just say wives obey your It says wives submit yourselves to your husbands in the Lord. In the Lord. That's key. Okay? So as long as that husband is in alignment with God and his word and God's will and God's purpose, yes, we are to align with that. Same with the children. Submit to their parents. Same with the husbands. We could write a scripture and say, husbands, submit to your pastors, right, in the Lord. Pastors, submit to your leaders and authorities that we all have to be under submission everybody has to be under you know submission but it's always in the lord so let's say you got a godly wife and you got an unsaved husband let's just say and she comes and she says my husband wants me to go out drinking with him to the bars or whatever you know and and he says your church says why submit to your husbands what says in the lord so here's the rule of thumb if what you are being asked to do by an authority would cause you to violate their authority, then they don't have the authority to ask you to do that. Okay? So if a husband is asking a wife to do something that violates the word of God, the pastor, God himself, then he doesn't have the authority to ask her to do that. If he's asking her to do something that's in alignment with the word of God, the pastor, and the spirit of God, then yeah, she needs to do that. Same as he needs to do if his pastor's asking him. So if what your leader's asking you to do doesn't violate the Word of God, the Scripture, the man of God, his authority, then, then you should do that. If it violates it, then you need to appeal. It's kind of like in the military, okay? The sergeant might say, and it happens in war sometimes, and he says, hey, shoot all those villagers. But that private knows that goes against the command from the general so that is an unauthorized order, and an unauthorized order has no authority behind it. And, in fact, if he follows that unauthorized order, knowingly that it's an unauthorized order, he's culpable himself. So he's duty-bound to obey this man as long as this man is obeying his superior and not causing him to disobey his superior. Okay? So that's the rule of thumb in, in authority and obedience and submission. Thank you very much. We've gone over time. Apologize for that. Amen. What an awesome teaching that we've had for the past night and now today. I pray that we've all been blessed and encouraged and we can um, be better at what we're attempting to do for the Lord.